0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo López, and today I'm here with Patrick Lee Miller for a second time. Uh, We're going to talk about Black Mirror, uh, the series. Uh, by Charlie Brooker, and, I mean, we're going to talk about the philosophy of it, basically. For people who don't remember our first episode, Patrick is an associate professor of philosophy at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the U.S. So, uh, Patrick, thank you a lot for taking the time again to come on the show. Uh, We're friends now, I guess, so... uh,
1: So we're friends. There's no doubt about that.
0: <laughs> okay, so, okay, so uh, talking about Black Mirror, so this, this is interesting, I guess, that most people wouldn't expect for me to, to talk with you about this subject. But last year, you started the course on the philosophy of Black Mirror at your university, right? When did you start it, uh, start it exactly?
1: Last summer, so a year ago. And I've, oh, okay. I've tried it about five times in the meantime.
0: Okay, great. So you're the expert here. I've only watched <laughs> the the series twice and the, the new episodes from the fifth season only once. So, right, me uh, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, me too. With regard to the new season, it's only been out a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was out in early June or something like that, right?
1: That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and I mean, let's uh, try to avoid that last episode with Miley Cyrus, because...
1: Yeah, I have nothing (laughs) to say about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone is saying that it was the worst one of the series, and I guess that I agree, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, shall I say up front that I teach and talk about, and, and also podcasts, as we may discuss, about uh 15 perhaps now 16 Black Mirror episodes. I don't pretend to cover the entire series. So there are some that I've seen only once.
0: Yeah, yeah. Me me too. Me too. I basically rewatched my favorite ones. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because there are those ones that have more juice, right? That's, so yeah. and and yeah. others that are more I mean uh, me, uh they are not really that high level, let's say as the others. So Let's put it that way. So uh, anyway, uh, okay. So let's get into this. And if someone were to ask you, uh, what is Black Mirror about? What would you say?
1: Well, one thing. First of all, it's an anthology. So it's not a continuous story. It's a series of short stories, if you like. So in that way, it's hard to summarize. It's not got a single plot. It's not got continuous characters. It's it's roughly a world. There are ways in which things occur in some episodes that are brought up in other episodes, but usually in trivial ways. They're, they're really independent series. Then, then the question is, what are the themes that occur over and over again? Right. I guess I would say in most, though not all, Charlie Brooker is imagining our society in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and technologies that are now only nascent Uh, Imagine them fully developed, or in some cases, imagine technologies that will probably never be developed, but are easily enough to imagine as continuations of what we have now. And what will the effect be on individuals and society? Usually a dystopian effect. I mean, often, as you know, uh, these are uh, bleak scenarios.
0: Yeah, very pessimistic, negative, black scenarios let's say perhaps that's also why it is called black mirror i mean it is basically about the screen on your television right but the word black there perhaps it has has more than one meaning i had assumed
1: just uh free associating on it i'd assume that it's holding a mirror up to us here is you know take a look at yourselves 21st century Uh, Westerners, take a look at yourselves. And don't you see how dark it is? I'd assume that's what it meant. And perhaps that was in his mind as well. But I was just told by a guest on my own podcast last week, that and again, I don't know if this was my guest theory or this, he'd heard Charlie Brooker say this. But when you hold up your iPhone, it's a black screen. And but you can see yourself reflected in it before you press the button and you see all the icons. So the phone as the symbol of new technologies, social media that are reconfiguring the way we relate to each other.
0: Oh, it's about the phone. I thought it was about the television screen, because I, I I don't know, I don't have a television in front of me right now, but I guess that uh, at least with the newest screens, if you look at them, you also get your reflection back. So
1: I suppose, yes. <laughs> We're just speculating, so who knows.
0: Yeah, 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 right. So... I mean, the first topic here that I have identified, and I think that it's a theme that runs through the entire series, more or less, perhaps not in a couple of episodes or something like that. But anyway, a common thread that runs through the entire series is, the, um, I mean, I'm not sure if I should call it a conflict or a relationship or an interplay between the individual and the society. Would you agree? So
1: I'd agree that that's an important theme in some episodes. I consider those the political episodes. And Hated in the Nation would probably be the best example of that, or White Bear, or Men Against Fire. But I don't know that the individual in society occurs as a theme in all of them. So take Hang the DJ, for example, which is about dating and love. Of course, it's about relationships with other people, so in that sense it's about society. But there's no political you know, narrative there as far as I can tell. But there are explicitly political episodes where the relationship between the individual and society is highlighted. And let's take hated in the nation as the clearest example of that, where you have a government who's uh, surveilling its population through little mechanical bees that ostensibly have been produced in order to um, solve the pollination problem as bee colonies die. But inside these little, little bees are surveillance cameras. And spoil, I mean, one thing we should say about this interview is that there will be spoilers for every episode that we discuss. So, anyone who hasn't watched it and is bothered by spoilers shouldn't watch this. Um, but, you know, it's a philosophical series, so you're not, it's not going to be ruined for you if you know the plot beforehand. But at any rate, in Hated in the Nation, uh, you've got the question of how much power do we give governments to
0: surveil us, as an example
1: of a, of a straightforward case where the individual and society come into conflict.
0: Yeah, I, I was just wondering if that, co- that kind of conflict only occurs in political episodes, because uh, I was just thinking about, for example, nosedive, and yes. it seems that there's also that conflict there. That's uh, a very,
1: that's, that's an excellent point, yes.
0: Yeah, yes. And, and it's not strictly political, because it's basically the entire society or I, I'm not sure if the entire society, but the entire society agrees on using that app on their cell phones and their computers to to, to give a score, a social score yeah. to each person. But then basically, it's only the people who interact with the person that score the, uh, that score them but uh, so it's not really uh, every single individual giving a, a score to every single person that is part of their society but I mean you understand what I'm saying right so but yes. it's not strictly political it's more of a societal uh, thing yeah. right
1: that's a good point point. Uh, one small Uh, qualification I make is it's not just phones and computers, but more importantly, eye implants.
0: And this is a theme
1: that occurs in four or five different Black Mirror episodes where people are given eye implants that change their perception of reality. So in Nosedive, you get this color palette that's, um, neon is not the right word, pastel, all pastel colors, you know, light pink, light green, and so on, and everything is perfect. And you only realize at the end of the episode when her eye implant has been removed because she's being punished, she's put in prison, that the world is, in fact, just as greedy as the world we experience, but that we've been seeing as viewers through her eyes and the eyes of the rest of society this pastel implant-produced reality. But I, I take your point that it's, a, it's maybe that's the best episode, in fact, about the relationship between the individual. In the sense that we don't see any government, the closest we come to a, a government representative would be the police officer at the airport, who's there to enforce um, the punishment on on Lacey is the name of the character. But when I teach that, when I talk about it in my own podcast, what I stress uh, the, the philosophical idea that I bring to bear on that episode is well, two: Plato's psychology and Plato's politics. In Plato's psychology, there are three parts of the soul. And the the so-called middle part is the part that values and seeks honor or esteem. And in his political constitutions, the second one after the perfect city is a society where the ruling class is uh, warriors. And what is it that warriors value honor and esteem and victory? And the entire society is then structured around the promotion of the acquisition of honor for that ruling class. And Plato thinks that, A certain kind of society produces a certain kind of character or soul, and vice versa. Certain kinds of people with certain kinds of souls tend to form certain kinds of societies. So another example that's more straightforward would be oligarchy. He thinks that people uh, in an oligarchy where the rich rule um, tend to turn out, because the education system, the oligarchy reproducing itself, they tend to turn out to be money-craving people. Well, in this episode, what we have is somebody, namely Lacey, who's dominated by that middle part of the soul, namely the desire for esteem. That's what the social media environment creates. You want to get as many likes as you can. You want your social score to be as high as possible. And as a result, we have a society depicted there where everybody is preoccupied with the acquisition of esteem and honor. So it's a kind of political constitution in Plato's sense. Without any government, at least we don't see any government, except for that one small episode with the police officer. So it's political in the broadest sense, without being political in the narrow sense of seeing you know, coercive government power.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I mean, I- I'm not sure if we should get right into this topic, but since we're talking about the political and the societal aspects of it, uh, I was just wondering if we should start talking about the role that technology plays in Black Mirror, because I'm not sure if if there's much human agency running through the series, in the sense that sometimes it seems to me that people create technology and then technology takes over their lives and they can't really do much about it. But there are other times where it seems that uh, people simply uh, at a social level agree on uh, keep on keeping running this technology uh, to control people 's lives in some way or another um, a- a- and then I mean there's some agency there in the sense that okay, we have this technology, but at any time if we wanted, we could shut it down, and it wouldn 't hold any more power over our lives but so wh- what do you think about that uh, because I, I i was also thinking about comparing it with other sci-fi dystopias like 1984 and brave new world uh, where particularly 1984 it seems to me that it is really a- about humans using technology to oppress other humans so Technology is basically neutral. It's just that there are oppressive humans that created that oppressive society and are using the technology as a tool to do that and to have more control o- over individuals that are part of that same society. But. Uh, uh, Brave New World, I mean, it's a bit more complicated because they are already doing some genetic engineering and so they they are even playing with people's free will because people are born already in a certain way uh, with a certain personality type, let's say, and they can't really choose w- what they want and w- what their preferences and things like that. But uh, and I, I was really wondering about that. It's a very difficult question. To what extent in Black Mirror technology takes over people's lives or uh, to what extent they have control over it? So. Yes. So,
1: um, I, you know, the, in which episodes does technology occur as, a, as an important theme? Almost all of them, most of them at any rate. So where to start? Uh, let's just start with Nosedive, the one that we were just discussing, and it's one of the most accessible and one of the most popular. So if people are watching this and they haven't watched Black Mirror, Nosedive would be a good episode to start with. Well, I've I've already described these implants that everybody in the society is working with at living with and taking for granted. And then there's this woman, Lacey, who, like everybody else, wants to acquire as Many likes or as as high a social score as possible, which is registered in the in the eye implant. And she does all kinds of desperate things in order to achieve that, and because she's too desperate, she wants it too badly. She ends up going too far, uh, and those of you you know know the episode know know what I'm talking about. And she ends up in prison. She ends up being punished, and at that point, her eye implant, as I mentioned, is removed, and she sees the grittiness of the world. She also has this very moving encounter with another prisoner, and. I think that's one of the few happy ending black mirror episodes because she does acquire agency or freedom at the end of that episode. The irony is that she's been physically free throughout the entire episode, but spiritually enslaved to the pursuit of honor through this technological implant. And it's only at the end of the episode when she's physically imprisoned, does she become spiritually free because they remove the eye implant that allows her to see the world the way it really is. And most importantly, Her soul has changed. Her character has changed. She's no longer, we assume, consumed with the desire for honor. She wants something. And that screaming of obscenities between her and the other inmate recalls uh, Susan, the truck driver, who was a kind of first instructor to Lacey, and Susan asking her what it felt like in that airport to yell. I think she, she probably yelled an obscenity. I can't remember exactly, but... Susan says, what did it feel like to yell? And Lacey's first reaction is, you know, it felt bad because I got punished by the police officer and I lost my social score. What Susan's trying to get her to to, to remember is, it felt good to express what she was really feeling and not be so concerned with what other people thought about her. Well, she's finally able to do that at the end of the episode, only because the implant has been removed, only because she's lost all chance at honor. And so it ends there. I think it's a very beautiful scene, one of my favorite scenes in all, all of film, we don't know what happens next, but I think what we're what we're led to assume is that she's achieved some kind of spiritual freedom, so agency, if you like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was just wondering about that episode because, uh, I mean, it seems to me that there are a lot of episodes where I'm not sure if Charlie Brooker isn't really criticizing human society in general and really has an overall pessimistic view about us and he only uses technology to explore those parts of human nature because in that episode for example um, it seems to me that the only way it is possible for individuals to acquire that sort of uh, spiritual freedom or agency whatever you want to call it is by marginalizing themselves from society, at least in some way, because it doesn't seem to me that if Lacey uh, were to uh, continue living in society and following those norms and uh, keeping her scores, let's say, that she would have the, she would have had the possibility of uh acquiring that sort of thing namely agency or spiritual free- freedom
1: yeah so it's pessimistic i think in the sense that it's really hard to imagine lacy as a revolutionary she's not going to overturn that society it's hard to imagine what anybody would do to overturn society yeah, most-
0: it seems that she she would never be able to convince even a group of people to try to change that society
1: yeah, and, and we have an example of somebody in the episode who tries to convince somebody, namely Susan, whom I mentioned, the truck driver, tries to convince Lacey. And how successful is she? Well, not at all in the moment, but she leaves her with the thermos of whiskey that proves helpful in her eventual unraveling, which achieves for her a kind of spiritual freedom. So ironically, because it's a very, uh, well, it's, it's not a theological series. Uh, there's very little uh, portrait of religion uh, or even spirituality in in Black Mirror. but you know when when I, when I think about lacey as a re, as a revolutionary, well, she's not going to be a political revolutionary. But by achieving that kind of spiritual freedom, by having lost everything, she might become an example to others. And the way that Susan, who had lost everything, becomes an example to Lacey. So it's sort of like it's like the beginning of a spiritual movement, but it's it's hard to imagine a political revolution coming out of that.
0: Mm-hmm. but going back to the issue of technology, do you think that? Uh, what Charlie Brooker is trying to convey, at least in most episodes, is that if we create those kinds of technologies, then I- it would be inevitable that we w- that a society of that kind would follow from it, or that technology is neutral and it's really about human nature and the way human societies function, that if we are exposed to those sorts of technologies, then uh, we we try to explore and control people in those exact same ways.
1: Yeah, that's a tough question to answer in the abstract. Maybe we could just go through a few episodes and see if some patterns sure. emerge. So I I guess I've tried to say in nosedive there is the hint of agency and overcoming of the problem, but another, the other end of the spectrum would be Men Against Fire which is about the soldiers who have the eye implants as well. Similarly, they don't perceive reality as it is, but instead as the army wants them to perceive it, namely without the smell of blood and shit and without the screaming of the victims and without seeing that the victims that they're killing are in fact human beings, but instead they seem like roaches. Well, there is a character, Stripe is his name, the soldier who is like Lacey in that this person wants to escape this system this person sees this problem with the system. In the case of Stripe, he's decided, that's it. I'm not going to kill the so-called roaches anymore. I want out. And then there's that haunting encounter between him and the psychiatrist, whose name is escaping me at the moment, the, character, uh, the character's name. But the psychiatrist persuades him to re-enter the army, as far as we can tell. And it's complicated, but that implant... I guess it's not not removable, or at least Stripe can't remove it. And the psychiatrist says, if you don't go back into the army and and continue this task of eliminating these so-called roaches, well, we're going to put you in prison, and we're going to replay what you did without the benefit of the filter. So this character Stripe has killed several human beings, and when he killed them he thought they were quote roaches that they looked like they looked like monstrous versions of human beings but now it's going to be a constant loop of him seeing killing innocent people people with whom he identified because of the time he spent with them because of the the way the show goes and the the ending is a little ambiguous but it seems that he has capitulated he has decided to return to the army because he simply finds that prospect of a life in prison Re- re-experiencing over and over again the horrible deeds that he's done, intolerable. So there's an example of somebody who's been captured by the technology. I mean, it, it would be possible, you know, ala Lacy to escape to say no to the psychiatrist because the psychiatrist says the implant only works if you want it to work. In other words, I can't make it work. It's there. It will work if you want it to work, but if you refuse it, so. He could reject it, he could exert his agency, but the price is so high that only a martyr would be capable of that. And so that's a dimmer vision of what it would take to escape. I mean, I suppose Lacey's a martyr as well. She's going to be in prison, but at least she's not being tortured by reliving her own worst moments in life.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's there's a very interesting episode that I think... As a very ironic ending, that is the second episode of the entire series. Fifteen million likes—is it the title of it? Erics.
1: Yeah, merits, but yeah, it might as well be uh, oh, likes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, they were basically expo- exploring uh, technology there, and. Uh, 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 how do you call it, A reality shows there basically, and so I uh, likes came to my head due to yes. Facebook and things like that, but anyway, 15 million merits because it seems to me that ironically, the, the main character, the black guy, I can't remember his name now, uh, yeah. he, he was trying to struggle against uh, society, how it was structured, and uh, try to Uh, go against uh, that reality show particularly, but it seems that by doing that, they gave him what he really wanted, in fact. Because at the end, at least the way I I interpret it, is that he got what he really wanted. He didn't really want to uh, go against the reality show itself, he just wanted attention. <laughs> I don't know if if I don't know if he really, really, really got what he wanted exactly. But at least for a somewhat short period of time, uh, it seems to me that he got satisfied <laughs> with what they gave him. So
1: I have, a, I have a very different interpretation of that episode. So. Okay. Let me first say, since it's a question that you had asked me before we started, um, so just for your listeners, I'd mentioned to you that I use Hegel's Master Slave Dialectic to talk about a lot of these episodes, and this is the one where it's clearest, so maybe I'll take an opportunity now to explain that and then explain, um, and it'll help me respond to your interpretation. So in in Hegel's Master Slave Dialectic, Hegel thinks that we all crave self-consciousness, And that we can only achieve self-consciousness when we get the recognition of others. And what we really want when we want recognition is we want to be recognized as free, rational agents. Getting back to our conversation about agency. But the only way, according to Hegel, to achieve pure agency, the only way to achieve superiority over the determining factors of your body, for example, and your craving to just survive, is to risk your life. So if you risk your life for pure dignity, purely for recognition, then you're not risking it for money, which can be interpreted as a bodily craving. You're not risking it for survival. Um, well, it doesn't make sense. At any rate, you, uh, by risking your life for the sake of honor, you are asserting your agency. And when two people encounter each other, both of whom have that desire for recognition and want to risk their lives for the sake of honor, They get into a a conflict, you know, in the clearest case, a battle, and uh, either they annihilate each other or one wins and one loses. And when one wins and one loses, it's the person who lost loses because he decides he wants, he values his life more than than the honor. So here you have one person who pursued honor uh, all the way, was willing to risk his life. As a result, he won. Another person who prefers to live rather than to achieve honor. The first becomes the master, the second becomes the slave. And it looks like the master is the victor there because he did what it took to achieve honor. And it looks like the slave is the loser. But what the master wants is recognition that he did that. The thing is that he's he can't get the recognition that he wants from a slave. He wants to be recognized by another master. But in this simple situation, all he's got is another slave. So that's the beginning of this dialectic, it's called, a process by which uh, you think you get what you want, but in the end, you can't get what you want. And through the dialectic, the slave starts to become more powerful because the master has the slave do everything for him. And as a result, the slave deals with the world immediately. The master is dealing with the world only immediately through the slave. The slave becomes empowered by his acquisition of knowledge by you know, performing the crafts. And, and making things for the for the master, the master becomes dependent on the slave and, and kind of helpless. He, he, he becomes lazy, doesn't have the knowledge that the slave starts to acquire. And eventually the slave can enslave the master because of this process. Well, anyway, back to the Black Mirror episode. So I disagree with you first that about what Bing really wants. I think, Bing, what first of all, what Bing really wants is he's in love with uh, Abby is her name. He hears her sing that song in the bathroom. It's a beautiful thing. And in in a world that's so deliberately ugly, I mean, you think about the production of the the show, apparently they had to do it on a very low budget. And when you rewatch it, it becomes clear that that's the case. This is before Netflix took over the series and they had just the BBC budget. And so you can really tell the difference between seasons one and two pre Netflix and seasons three to five post Netflix. Anyway, he overhears that song and he's in love with the beauty of the song and with the beauty of the woman who sings the song and he wants to sacrifice everything so that she can fulfill her dream, which is uh, singing this song for a mass audience. And, and you know, I think he has noble um, desires also. He wants the society to hear this song. He wants, you know, he, he hates the society. this gray, meaningless, rep- repetitive, s- riding a, a bicycle. So he gets her on the show by sacrificing everything that he's inherited from his brother, 15 million merits. And she's on the show, she performs this beautiful song. And then the, The judges undercut it they say well yeah that's beautiful but there are a lot of beautiful songs out there what we really need is for you to star on a porn channel and she has drunk this uh, drink called compliance she's weak-willed at that moment she's not making good judgments and she decides to go along with them and she gets drawn into the pornography industry instead of singing beautiful songs so there's an example of somebody who has been uh, commodified someone who has something beautiful something that you know can't be reduced to the logic of capitalism, which is what this is dramatizing. And it gets turned into a commodity, namely a base uh, satisfaction of a, of a universal, you know, basic uh, sexual pleasure in this case, and commodified to the enrichment of that judge. Uh, judge Wraith is his name. So now fast forward to Bing, he then has this furious effort to acquire 15 million merits. He has to ride the bicycle for however many months or years. And then he gets on the show and the only reason he's there is that he wants to threaten his own life so that he can make a speech and he has to get in order to get on the show he has to do a song and dance to make it seem like that's what he's really going to do and it, it's a kind of crude weird dance that it's really hard to tell what's going on and then all of a sudden he rips rips off his jacket pulls out the glass shard and holds it to his throat that is a very clear instance i think of the master slave dialectic or the beginning of it because here he's saying I'm willing to die if you don't listen to me. In other words, I want recognition from you. I want to say what I have to say, which turns out to be a description of what happened to his girlfriend, Abby. Namely, you took this beautiful thing and you destroyed it, and I want you to know what you did, and I want the audience to know what you did. And there is a kind of revolutionary potential there. Namely, everyone could see how false this system is. It could be like Eastern Europe, you know, in the late eight, late 80s or, in, or in early 90s, namely all of a sudden just the illusion disappears and we all just realize this is a terrible system let's just stop doing this that possibility is there when he's holding that to his throat and he gives that very moving speech some of which was improvisational by the way that's just an amazing actor who who did that it's it's so intense uh, but the judges handle it masterfully and when i say masterfully I, maybe i mean the hegelian sense but also they twist what he wants into something else namely the, the main judge, I, I forget his name now, but the Simon Cowell imitation character, he says, you know what? That was amazing. You spoke your truth. And of course, that's a complete deflation because now it's not the truth, which is in fact what he's telling. He's telling the truth about the society. It's now been relativized and deflated. You spoke your truth. Now it's just particular to you. And I, the judge, want to give you half an hour every week to speak your truth. Now it's turned into a commodity. And really, to preserve his integrity at that moment, Bing should commit suicide. But he doesn't. So he loses because he gets co-opted into this commodity system. And that's where Marx comes in handy. Where now, every week, he gives a half an hour monologue that's revolutionary, but, you know, it's squeezed between a game show and a show where, you know, fat people in yellow suits are having whipped cream thrown at them and so on. It's just another stupid thing. And people feel the joy of ridiculing a fat person, then they feel the joy of revolutionary anger, and then they move on to a game show. It's just just another emotion, just another spectacle. And so in that final scene, which maybe we, now we can debate, because this is where our interpretations would differ, he gives that revolutionary monologue that he gives every week, and then he takes that glass shard that he's that he started with, and he puts it in a black box, you know, that's, you know, a fancy black box, and he closes it, And he pours himself a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. He's clearly got servants and he's in this beautiful apartment. And then he looks out the window, which I think is just a a TV panorama because the whole society, they're living in in some kind of, you know, fake uh, scenery. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, all right, he got what he wanted. He just wanted to live alone in this beautiful apartment and drink fresh squeezed orange juice. Or I find that just soul crushing despair. Namely, he had a chance. He did something truly noble and he allowed himself to be commodified and I, I find it I find it so sad
0: yeah but there's the that's the issue right because from the moment he refused or he didn't want to kill himself then couldn't we say that it was the case or at least he seems to transmit that idea that it was the case that what he got was what he really wanted to begin with.
1: Now you're talk- by he, you mean Bing rather than Charlie Brooker? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, no, I was talking about the character.
1: Yeah. About the character Bing, yeah. Well, uh, it depends on your theory of uh, human psychology, I suppose. If someone does something and it has a result, does that mean that's what they really wanted? I would think, in this case, he did something. he didn't uh, He didn't anticipate what would happen, and then he got something as a result of it, and I don't think it's what he wanted. I think... What he really wanted was the beauty of that song that he heard in the bathroom. He wanted the beauty of Abby, the woman who sang that song. And he was filled with rage when those things got commodified. And that rage then provoked him to seek that moment of honor. And then that moment of honor, he surrendered. And now he's just another commodity in this meaningless system of 15 million merits.
0: But but the thing is that even after that, he still has the chance of committing suicide and he doesn't
1: so what would he do like on episode five of his show then slit his throat on on tv i think that at that point i think at that point it would be a meaningless gesture i mean but they'd probably not air it first of all it seems like whereas those uh performances were live apparently this is a this is a you know a, a scripted show this is just another recording that goes along but at any rate you know, it's just become a little, a little episode. Whereas he had the attention of the entire society in that moment. And I think it would be a parody if he did it eventually. I think he's, he's completely lost.
0: Yeah, but, but the thing is still that, that uh, to whom is, is it important for that uh, act or that gesture to have meaning for, for the yeah. society or for himself? Because even if you put aside uh, the impact that he would have on society yes. after after having missed the first chance yeah I mean, I mean he's still choosing uh, on continuing living in that condition w- when he could at any time put an end to his life so
1: yeah yeah well it's hard to imagine let's imagine ourselves as being in in episode five and and recognizing what I think we both agree, which is he's been commodified, co-opted what what would we do? <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm tempted, maybe I'm intellectualizing here, but turn it into a lesson about how even revolutionary gestures get commodified as a way of, first of all, introducing people to philosophical ideas, You know, which is already an achievement in a society like that of 15 million merits, but also as a warning to the next person who tries to revolutionize things and say, don't make the mistake that I made.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that's an interesting view, but... <laughs> I still can't get past the idea that perhaps it's just an ironic episode and maybe what the guy wanted from the beginning was just what he got. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Because I mean, I'm not convinced that someone had the opportunity of uh, committing suicide in front of everyone and putting a powerful message out there. And then he didn't do it. And then he was commodified. And someone as intelligent as he was, I mean, he was, he was just uh, accepting that condition, that situation. He wouldn't do anything about it, even if it was to commit suicide and end it all. I, I mean...
1: Yeah, I guess I, I just find it implausible because it seems to me your interpretation would require that after Abby has been commodified and he just furiously achieves 15 million merits so that he can get back on the show, that it's an elaborate plan to become famous. It's like shooting the moon It's so implausible that that would be the outcome. I can't see that that was his intention from the beginning. I think a more plausible interpretation is, no, he's willing to risk everything to make this one speech. And then because he's not quite as clever as the judge, the judge tricks him, he gets distorted and ends up losing. And then now we're, we're showing that final scene, where, which is ambiguous, both about what's going on through his head, but also what we would do if we were in that position. It's, I mean, I think it's one of the, I, I think that's one of the best scenes of Black Mirror. I don't think that's one of the best episodes, but it's, it's a good final scene where you're not sure. And it, that's why I think, too, people who have thought a lot about it, such as we are, can have very different interpretations of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I don't know, people are very complicated, and perhaps what could seem like a, he falling in, in love for the girl and wanting to do something to help her, <laughs> I mean, it could be just him transforming uh, and another thing that he wanted to do into that, because I mean, the way our minds operate, we don't really have access to our underlying motivations. And sometimes we rationalize things post hoc. And I mean, I, I could convince myself, okay, so I'm going to do this to help someone because I like the girl or something like that. But then when I go through that, and they give me an opportunity to live in this place and to uh, preach to, <laughs> to the people uh, 30 minutes per week. Uh, and I don't have to go uh, using the damn bicycle again to acquire merits or whatever. <laughs> I mean, maybe when you get really in, into the new situation, it's uh, before you get into it, it's really hard to... To predict uh, how you how you will feel uh, then and there—that's that, yeah. perhaps what I'm trying to say here.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I, of course I agree with that, and it's, and it's an old problem. We don't need technology. It's the old problem of martyrdom. Namely, you you profess a belief. Let's say the Christians. You profess a belief. And the idea is you don't know whether you really believe that until you're staring into the jaws of the lion and you're willing to, as the Christian martyr does, continue singing the hymns and let the lion devour you because you are so confident that you're going to heaven. Why don't we switch episodes? Because, uh, again, there's just so many. And, and what we're trying to do, I think, here is, is rise above particular episodes and, and see yeah, themes.
0: Yeah, And and perhaps, perhaps even more than switching episodes, uh, switching topics here, because we've been talking about the... Uh, basically individuality and the conflict in the series between individuality and our social selves, let's say. But there's another part of individuality that has to do with the self. And the self is something that is deeply explored in Black Mirror, uh, because uh, particularly in the episodes where they put someone in a virtual reality, or they transfer the mind of a person to a virtual world. And then even yeah. in that episode, whose name I can't remember now, where the guy that has died is brought back to life, but he, his mind is basically put inside a robot, right? Or some sort of replication of his. And I mean, there's all those layers of what we should understand to be a person would let's say i mean should we should we think that someone who's being simulated in a virtual reality is still a person or not and if it's still a person then the ways by which the other people that are still alive uh, are changing his or her environment uh, and the way they manipulate them to behave in certain ways? I mean, should we take that seriously from an ethical perspective or,
1: I mean. So many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the episode that you're referring to is called Be Right Back. And. You know, I assume your listeners have watched it, but maybe just a little refresher of, of what's going on there is that you know, he's died and she is invited to first uh, con- uh, converse online with a, a simulacrum of him, a program that has combed through his social media and emails and so on and pulled out typical phrases and as a result, gotten his, quote, personality. And so when she writes him, this algorithm, he responds back the way he would have responded back. And it's to her quite convincing. He makes the same kinds of jokes, for example. And then eventually, as, as you know, your readers, or your viewers will know if they've seen it, um, the next level is having a robot, as you say, um, brought to life and the algorithm now lives in this robot. So then the question is, is it him is, you know, a lifelike body with which he can even have sex implanted with an algorithm that's drawn from all of his social media posts is that him and there are so many ways we can go you ask several different questions but one is well is that really him i think you asked and take just take this point which connects with what we were saying earlier that the him the personality is uh distill uh, you know it's, it's just it's a distillation of his online presence and so there's the question is is your online presence you And I think anyone who has a social media account and knows friends who also have social media accounts, no, it's not. It's a certain presentation of you. And that's anticipated at the very beginning of the episode. They're driving home, and the Bee Gees come on, and he's rocking out to the Bee Gees, and she says, what? You don't like the Bee Gees. And um, he says, well, have you never heard of headphones? (laughs) Namely, I've got Secret tastes that you don't know that aren't accessible to the world because they're my private tastes and so too For, for the online social media presence. There's the stuff we put out there Then there's the stuff that we, we might not even write online in an online diary because it's so secret to ourselves and so that that robot is at best a persona that he played or you know a combination of many personae that he played and I think the show is saying among other things But there's a hymn that's different from the Personae that we play, and that's not replicatable.
0: (laughs) But, But I guess that there's even another problem there. I don't know if it's explored specifically in the episode, but we know in real life that we have that thing where if you introduce more and more information or feed more and more information into an algorithm, for example, in Netflix or in Amazon, then if you go and look for suggestions, then it seems that the the algorithm knows you even better than you know yourself, because sometimes (laughs) it gives you suggestions that you you wouldn't even think about. And you you go for them, and you like them. So, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, so what was what I was trying to say is that perhaps uh, in that episode, because they tried to acquire all the information of his interactions in the virtual world, or in on the internet, or on, on social media, more specifically, uh, that maybe they got access to something that was part of him. I'm not sure how the, the correct words that we should use here, uh, if we should talk about the self or the person. But anyway, that they got access to something that was even deeper than what he had uh, conscious access to in his normal, uh, usual, everyday interactions or something like that.
1: That's an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that. It's very good. But I think that it still can't get access to him for uh, the same reason we were discussing earlier with regard to Hegel's master-slave dialectic. So what is the conflict in that episode? It, it eventually comes to a head at the end where she's got this robot that's a, uh, an almost perfect physical simulation and, a, and an almost perfect mental or emotional uh, simulation but there's something that it can't do because of it being a simulation. Namely, it can't fight back. So it's designed to uh, replicate the patterns from the past. Mm -hmm. And it's also there with certain rules. And we can, of course, eventually, uh, let me describe this first, with the rules, we can eventually remove the rules and see what's left. But, But one of the rules is that it's not allowed to hurt her. And... They get into a quarrel in the bedroom and I can't remember the precise details, uh, how it develops, but she eventually says, hit me and it's striking because the robot says, Ash, who was the name of the man whom the robot is imitating, I have no record of Ash ever having, of of I ever having hit you. He's speaking the first person as, as if he were Ash. Now, here you've got Hume's problem of induction. Just because he didn't hit her in the past doesn't mean that he won't hit her in the future. Right. there's, There's that philosophical problem. But the one that I'm trying to get to is, I think, deeper, which is what she wants from this simulation is a real human being, where the difference between a real human being and this simulacrum is that the real human being gives recognition to her or love to her in this case because it wants to not because it's being commanded to by the algorithm of its creation. So again, back to the master-slave dialect, what the master finds, she's the master in the situation, and the robot is the slave, and what she finds, just like what the master finds in Hegel's description, is that she wants this robot to love her, not because it's programmed to do that, to satisfy her needs, to to repeat all the funny jokes from the social media and so on. She wants this robot to love her because that's what he wants and he's freely chosen to do that and it's impossible for an algorithm to freely choose anything
0: but then i guess we can establish a bridge between what happens in that episode with the robot and uh, with what happens in another episode uh, i can't remember the name neither but that episode where they have that eye technology where they can record their lives and then they co- they can go back to the past and replay it and they even can put that on a screen for other people to yeah. see right yeah. Be- history of-
1: sorry it's called, it's called the entire history of you yes that
0: uh, yes that's it so uh, because i was just thinking so If in in the episode with the robot, the the woman gets frustrated because it doesn't seem that uh, that's a real person, that the robot doesn't act naturally as a normal person would, uh, and it seems false in a sense, right? So uh, establishing the bridge with the other episode, the entire history of you, then... um, people are basically lying to one another there. So if the robot in the other episode is not the real person, then if you're interacting with someone that is lying to you, is that the real person?
1: I see. I see. Okay, well, so much to say again. I'm glad you brought up Entire History of Review because before we switch topics about five or ten minutes ago, that's the episode that I want to, to talk about. Oh, okay. And as I may say, uh, just why I wanted to bring it up in that context is that that's another episode with an eye implant. Here it's an eye implant that records the visual field and, and the audio stimulation as well. It doesn't record smells as far as we know. It doesn't record the full physical experience. But um, all, all sorts of bad things happen as a result of that in that episode. But it's an, it's, it's an episode like Nosedive where and unlike 15 million merits where the character succeeds in liberating himself from the technology so at the end he cuts it out uh you know again it's a kind of martyrdom namely how badly do you want to escape the system in Lacey's case are you willing to go to prison in his case are you willing to cut this thing out it's almost like he's committing suicide he's you know he's quite close to the carotid artery uh, for example So anyway, that's just the point I want to make earlier, and I'm glad I got the chance to, but remind me uh, what bridge you want to make with what we've just been discussing about the master-slave dialectic.
0: Okay, basically it's about how you interact with other people and what you deem to be uh, uh, the true person, let's say, and the false person. Because if you can say that in the episode with the robot, that's yes. not a real person. Then, if you are establishing a false yes. relationship on the basis of lies with another person, couldn't yes. you also say that that's not the real person? So the, and so, and so, you wouldn't distinguish um, a dishonest real person yes. from and a natural robot. Let's say. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think we got to make some distinctions here. There there are different layers of falsehood, different layers of truth that are relevant. So in that entire History of You episode, the wife, Fee, has been lying to Liam, the main character, about, well, the father of their child, who turns out to be this man with whom she had the uh, brief affair. And so that's false. And he, Liam, is relating to her on a false premise. And are they really in a relationship? Well, you know, you don't want to have too high a standard because we're all, at the very least, deceiving ourselves and, and you know, to, to some extent, as a result, deceiving other people, even if we're not doing so intentionally. So if your standard is you have to be totally honest all the time, we would never be in any relationships. <laughs> so we have to recognize layers and distinctions. But I would say that he's relating to the real her in this sense, that she is freely telling those lies. So that would be the bridge for me to the Be Right uh, Back episode, where just as... Martha that's the name of the protagonist and be right back she wants Ash to hit her to prove that he is an independent free agent so too uh, fee is lying and I'm not saying Liam wants her to lie but the fact that she's lying that's her free choice to lie to him
0: right
1: so you know whether you're hitting somebody whether you're lying to them whether you're telling the truth whether you're making love to them whatever there, all these range of human behaviors and you can make distinctions about truth and falsity within them, but as long as they're coming from a free choice of the individual, then that's the reality that's that's relevant to, is this the real person that I'm dealing with, at least at that layer.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so now, now let's get into something that I alluded to before uh, when I referred to... Uh, mind uploading and putting people or putting the the mind of someone into a virtual reality, because that's a very complicated issue as well. And another one that has to do with personhood and the self, I guess. Because would you say that in those episodes, like for example, White Christmas, where they put someone that is, for example, about to die, they uh, take out their mind and and then put, put it into a virtual reality of some sort, would you say that that's still a person we're dealing with and that we should take that person as it was an existing person and someone we should care about? Or that perhaps since it's just, an upload of the mind, we're just copying the person, and then whatever people do with her in that virtual reality, and if they tweak uh, her environment in some ways, or even if they shut her down for a, a period of time, that they're just sort of playing a game, but with a highly realistic avatar, let's say, or something like that.
1: Yes. So let's just uh, maybe get clear which particular episodes we're talking about. So you mentioned White Christmas, which does have oh, yeah. virtual characters. Um, the Don Draper. Uh, so the Mad Men actor, I forget, John Hamm, he's playing that. Um, romantic services director who knows how to manipulate people. He goes into a virtual world in order to extract a confession from somebody. A very complicated story, so I didn't want to get into uh That, that episode, by the way, began as three different ideas for three different episodes, and then Charlie Brooker decided they could all be combined. Uh, then I think you were mostly talking about San Junipero, where somebody's about to die and they have the choice of being uploaded into this kind of paradise, and,
0: and, and also that episode, uh, Black Museum, or something like that, right. where there's that story about the the black guy that uploads the mind of uh, his wife's mind to um, uh, first to his own mind, right, and then, then t- and then to a teddy bear.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. And then I would add to the mix an episode from the most recent season, my favorite episode of that new season, Striking Vipers, where these two guys uh, play video games in college together. And of course, when you go back and watch the episode, again, knowing how it turns out, you can see that even their play when they're in their 20s is kind of homoerotic. You know, they're wrestling on the couch, and they're simulating uh, sex, for example. Uh, But you don't you just think, Oh, that's like two frat guys fooling around, you know, playing around, whatever, making fun of each other. But you know, as you know, if you've seen the episode, they, as uh, mature men in their late 30s, early 40s, I think, discover a version of this game that they'd been playing back in college. But it's now been, it's become so sophisticated that you take an eye, again, an eye implant, you go into the world, and it's simulated for you as if you're there in every sense. You're not just playing on a screen, but you're living it. And I guess when they used to play it, one of the guys would play a female character. Uh, you know, it's it's a karate fighting game, and the other would play some other person. And when, then when they do it, when they're in their 40s, they go in and they play those characters. But now he's playing a woman. It's not just that he's playing a woman on the screen. He is a woman. He has all the physical sensations of being a woman. And they start to fight, and then it, it immediately turns into an, an intense, passionate sexual encounter. And they keep doing it uh, until one of them decides he has to stop because his wife is getting suspicious, and he's not as into it as, as the other guy. Whereas for the other guy, this is the most exciting romance he's ever had in his life. And I think the, the really amazing scene in that episode is when they decide they're going to meet in real life and they're going to kiss. And they do so in the pouring rain. So it's got romantic cliches. These two big athletic guys, you know, you know, each of whom is heterosexual in their so-called real life and they meet in the rain and they kiss and they both say there's nothing yeah. where you know we'll fold this into your original question i realize it's not directly addressing your your uh, original question but it's the way that i want to talk about these things at least at the start that is is those characters the female character and the male character who are in the karate game are they real well they're real let's just start you know intuitively they're real the the bodies the two guys let's just take that, that's reality one, they go into a game, that's now reality two, and I want to say it's real in a deflated sense, but still real, an inferior sense, that it depends on features from reality one. In other words, if there weren't something about that guy who finds that game so sexually exciting in reality one, that is um, not even homoerotic, but, you know, perhaps transgender, the fact that he likes being in a woman's body, and he finds that the most exciting, well, that's, not coming from nowhere, because obviously it doesn't happen to the other guy, it's coming from his reality. So it's a virtual reality, but it's parasitic on the real reality. It pulls out certain dimensions from the real reality and heightens them. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's how I want to enter this question. I realize it doesn't answer your question. Maybe you can ask your question again, and I'll be able to sort of go back to that to show why it is that I think that's the, the, at least for me, the best way into this.
0: Uh, Okay, that's interesting. But I guess that there's somewhat of a difference there because uh, when you are talking about the the virtual characters, uh, I mean, when they put that piece of technology on to play the game, I mean, there are real people back here, not in the virtual world, controlling the characters, right? But if we're talking about mind uploading... uh, I mean, extracting the mind of someone, uh, because I guess that the real issue here is deciding if what we extracted from the person is the person itself or a copy of him or or her. Yes.
1: Yes. I would actually say neither. So, again, back to Striking Vipers, when the, the female and the male karate characters fight and then have sex... Who's orchestrating that? The real men in reality, reality one. And what I mean by that now, I want to tie back to what I said about Hegel earlier. And, and I'm not a Hegelian. I, I want to ground this ultimately in Plato for reasons that we can talk about if you want. But I'll just start with Hegel. That the, the, what makes that a real encounter is that these are two free individuals seeking recognition from other free individuals because that's the kind of thing that they are they go into this game and they bring that there. That's what makes it sexy. If it were just, you know, he doesn't want to, as he says, he goes in and he, and he has, quote, sex with simulations of all sorts of types. And he says, it's nothing. Because he, and I think most people uh, with healthy sexuality, when they want to, what they find exciting is not a masturbatory fantasy where there's a simulation of another person, but a real person. And what is it that's so sexy about that? It's that, a real person is freely choosing to do this with you. And if you find out that, well, they're only doing it because they're, they're, they've are they been enslaved, or they've been paid, uh, and so on, it, that takes away the satisfaction that one gets from the quote, real, and I, I say quote, I don't wanna say quote, I wanna say the real encounter. What is it, they're two free agents doing this. Now, now we're getting to your original question. I would say in the San Junipero case, and this would probably apply to those other episodes as well, What's happening there, it's like Be Right Back, namely some program that we're asked to imagine filters through, in this case, perhaps their brain and reproduces some information that they get from, if not their social media accounts, then their actual brain reproduces it and, in, into a computer and then creates a simulation. We can imagine the game going on. But if there's an algorithm there, then it's not going to be a free agent. So I think what we get in *Sensjonapera*, for example, when Kelly and Yorkie are, let's say, having sex, to, to make, make the contact with striking vipers clearest, are just algorithms. It would be like watching a cartoon, um, you know, pornography film, where there's these two you know, these two characters are scripted by an algorithm, and they inter- their so-called bodies interact in, in certain ways. So that's why I would say it's neither. Uh, the real person, nor your other choice was a copy. In a sense, it's a copy, it's the distillation of all that information, but it's not a copy because what's missing is the thing that makes the person really a person, namely the the free agency.
0: But if that person, that virtual character that is a copy of the person in some sense is not the real person, then if someone does with her, what for example the guy in black museum does with the other black guy that was sentenced to death by yes. torturing him do you think yes. that, that that's an ethical thing to do that that's that that there's no problem there
1: I don't see a problem with it I mean any more than if you go into a video game and you just punch a, a character in a video game over and over again it's not doing anything it's just in, a, in the end it's just zeros and ones. And it's not even zeros and ones. It's just silicon moving around inside, you know, electrons moving inside. It's nothing. It it seems like it's an ethical dilemma because we get tricked into thinking these are people, but they're just simulations.
0: Okay, so what he was doing back there, I mean, it wasn't problematic.
1: I don't think so. I mean, it, it depends on your philosophy of mind. And, you know, we could part into that, if you if you like. Um, you know, I talk all day about why I think there's a soul, for example, and why free agency is who we really are, and it's rooted in the, in the, in the platonic account of the soul. I don't think that's what you want to talk about today, but that's, no. that's where I'm coming from.
0: Okay, so perhaps going back to Striking Vipers, because th- th- that's a very crucial episode, I think, because in that episode, I think that Charlie Brooker is very clear in terms of Okay, so they are playing the video game and then they have the, their, real, life, their yes. real lives. But when they meet, they are able to distinguish the virtual world from the real world, right? Yes. That's right. So, in that episode at least, we get the sense that uh, people are not completely immersed in virtual reality, they are able to get back from it or get out of it, and and they don't confuse things. I mean, they won't uh, act or behave in the real world as they do in the virtual reality. But uh, going back to Black Museum then, I was also wondering if we should take seriously uh, the effects that even if the black guy that is under torture there is not real, the effects that it could have on other people that yeah. torture him because they confuse the yeah. black guy for a real person, you know.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that that's a good point. That um, you know, and I, it's causing me to rethink something. So, uh, take child pornography. Uh, obviously you don't want there to be child pornography where there are real child actors for all the obvious reasons. But one thing I've wondered is what's the problem with um, digital child pornography where, you know, no children were actually acting in it, but uh, somebody made an animation program. Uh, it, it,
0: it, it could even be a child sex robot, for example.
1: Yeah. It, oh, it, exactly. Right. And I guess I've thought without going too deeply in this before, I thought, what's the problem? There's no actual child being harmed. And if people are born with pedophilic inclinations, which people obviously are, then if they're able to fulfill them in that totally harmless way, then what's the problem? Uh, you know, for example, there's a complete ban, as far as I know, on even animated uh, reproductions of uh, uh, child sex. So, uh, But now I'm starting to see, well, I, I can see the argument, I don't know that I buy it, I'd have to think about it, and certainly I wouldn't want to have to think about it on air. But the argument is that it has effects on, on real people. So the argument would have to be all right, there's these animated child pornographic scenes, no actual child was involved, but it makes people more likely to have sex with children, or it's gonna corrupt it's gonna be used to corrupt children or something. It's gonna to have to fold into reality in some way. Now again, I, I don't know that I buy those arguments, but, but at least those are the arguments that could be made. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and and that's interesting because it's not clear at all if if charlie brooker thinks that that could have a negative effect in people's real lives or not because i mean even in black museum in striking vipers it seems to me that it's clear that it doesn't have an effect on people's lives i mean uh, uh, in the end they decide that Uh, once a month or something like that they would meet in the game to have sex again but I mean they still can distinguish reality from the game Uh, yeah and and in black museum uh, I mean people could, could say okay those people that went there and that decided to torture the poor black guy and they and they saw it happening and then took that that thing with them there where the black where there was a copy of the black guy still screaming or something like that the, the, uh, yeah, that could have a negative effect on them, but even then, it seems to me that most of the people that were attending the museum were already racists, so they they weren 't changed by the experience they already wanted to have that sort of experience because they didn't like black people in the case.
1: Yeah, and, and the, more generally the question is, uh, do fantasies of bad things flow back into reality so that people become more inclined to do bad things? And this is the debate from the 80s about violent video games or violent movies. Do people who play violent video games, are they more violent? Or do people who watch um, you know certain kinds of pornography be, become more perverse as a result of those kinds of pornography? And I, as far as I know, the evidence is at best equivocal and that there's no... Uh, you no know, consensus on, on whether that's true. You know, there's another line of thinking, which is that when people fulfill things in fantasy, they don't, as a result, need to fulfill them in reality. So that violent uh, video games, for example, uh, provide a steam valve for people who would otherwise be violent in, in life. I mean, those, those are two coherent ways of addressing that problem, but it's ultimately an empirical question, what the relationship between fantasy and reality is. Mm-hmm. Any, yeah,
0: yeah and from the literature I know it doesn't seem that violent video games and pornography and things like that have a negative effect As, on yeah. people so
1: yeah I mean I'm not an expert but you know the little taste I've gotten of that of that literature and the the people I trust who are experts in that suggests that yeah it's perhaps a, a mild positive effect mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and what me say about, about striking vipers, because I think this is tied to what we're talking about, but I also wanted to quibble a, a moment ago, you want to say it doesn't have any real effect on them. And that's true in the sense that they're able to distinguish reality from fantasy. They keep it to one night a, one night a month. But let's just focus on the married couple. So one night a month he gets to go into the video game and have sex with his college friend when he's she is a woman. But the wife also gets to go to a bar. She takes off her wedding ring, goes to a bar and and has a fling or at least maybe just has a conversation. We're not shown what what actually happens. And there's a classic view of marriage that will be familiar to everybody that this is bad for them because they're cheating. But there's another view of marriage that and I think will just depend on what kind of marriage, what kind of people. But I think what we're led to see here or we're led to think here is that this is good for their marriage. Again, with, with the idea of it being a kind of steam valve, namely there's this part of this guy who wants to have sex with his friend. And again, I think that's what that kind of homoerotic scene at the beginning of the episode is suggesting that in their, in their college incarnations, they just play as if it's a silly thing, but clearly there was something there. So that's a part of him. She's got a part of her that wants to have these, flings or adventures or feel like she's still sexy and desirable to other men. And as long as they're able to keep it contained, in this case, one night every month, it could enhance the marriage. It could refresh things. They come back the next day more excited and more in love with each other because they don't resent each other for feeling like they're trapped in a marriage where they can't explore parts of themselves. And it can be dangerous in a relationship because, of course. He could fall in love with his friend and she could meet somebody that she prefers and the, the marriage could dissolve. I mean, I've seen many marriages that begin as sexual explorations that then end up in divorces because, well, the sexual exploration was actually just the beginning of the divorce. But it certainly seems in some cases where that kind of exploration strengthens the marriage. And it's not the traditional view. I think it's a view that people are only starting to become aware of, at least in a mainstream way. Of course, it's always been the case. But
0: yeah i mean I, I guess that striking vipers is one of the few episodes that has a positive tone to it i mean it doesn't end badly i guess right. I, mean, I, right. I, I i don't see anything bad really happening there i guess i, I mean per- perhaps some people could question okay is what they're doing in the virtual world uh, right to do or not but i mean it doesn't seem problematic to me at least uh, and, and then there are also perhaps a couple on, of other episodes that also have a positive tone to them, like uh, San Junipero, uh, Hang the DJ, I guess, as well. So, I mean, I mean a, a, again, uh, Charlie Brooker, most of the series is dark uh, yes. and negative and pessimistic. But even so, it seems that now and then he comes up with episodes that lift things up a little bit uh, uh, yes. and, and, and give another view to how people can deal with the technology that they can create and how it can even have a positive effect on their lives in some way and also dealing with one another. So,
1: Yes yeah i mean it's an interesting question what are the happy ending episodes in black mirror I, I think you you pick the one the only one that i think is unequivocally happy hang the dj um and i, I think striking vipers should be added to that now now that season five is out i would say those two although and let me just finish that thought san Junipero is at best equivocally happy so i think it en- it ends with a happy song heaven is a place on earth and they're driving in their miata and it's sunny and they're in love and so on But if you think about, well, what's the next day going to be like? What's it going to be like in 10,000 years? All the resentments that are there in their relationship just below the surface that, you know, erupted when Kelly slaps Yorkie in the face, for example, because Yorkie's been disrespectful about Kelly's marriage. Well, they're going to have to deal with that at the very least. And it's not clear that they have as people, Yorkie especially, their emotional resources to deal with those sorts of things. So It's a happy ending in the way that two people go out from the sunset is a happy ending, as long as you don't think about what happens next. Um, Hang the DJ, I mean, so I would count Nose Dive as a happy ending for the reasons I mentioned earlier. She's in prison, but she's free for the first time, apparently, in her life. Hang the DJ is the only one where, you know, you're smiling and they're in love and they see each other and there seems to be no critique. Unless you don't buy the theory of love that is implicit. I think, in that, Uh, not to mention the technological, which gets to what we were saying earlier. The theory of love is you've got a soulmate, and this program has helped these two people find each other in a huge crowd because they're 99.8% compatible, whatever that means. And if you don't think that's what love is, but instead, you know, two mature people who recognize the flaws of each other and think we want to achieve this goal together and yeah, we'll have a good time along the way. And you know, I'll protect you and you'll help me and I'll admire you and you'll respect me, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the view that you get in the final scene of of Hang the DJ. Instead it's the, I found my soulmate. Um, Which gets back to that technological question. How is it that they're determined to be 99.8% compatible? Well, It's a dating app, which we have to imagine is like some of the other episodes, so sophisticated in its ability to comb through your preferences, maybe more sophisticated than you in knowing what you want to buy uh, on Amazon. And it can reproduce a thousand simulations of you and this other person and whether you decide to escape the simulation because it's not putting you together. Therefore, if it happens 998 times, you're 99.8% compatible. But that gets at the question that we were talking about earlier, which is, are these simulations of you that are in this program you <laughs> if they're just algorithms that are distilled from your social media posts and, and whatever even direct downloads from information from your brain if they're missing something that i was referring to earlier as free agency then it's it's not even a copy of you it's a it's you know a, an illusion of you mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And since we're talking about simulations, I guess that this is perhaps more of a technical or scientific question. But uh, I was just thinking about that thought experiment that Robert Nozick came up with, the experiment experience machine or something like that, right? Uh, Where he was basically uh, putting forth the idea that, oh, what if there was a machine that if people were put into it, they would... Uh, they would enter into a virtual reality where they would just experience pleasure, and, no, and nothing would go bad, and they would uh, only and only good things would occur in their lives, and things like that. And I was just thinking about that because if it is really the case that. Um, the world we experience is basically the way our brain deals with the stimuli that come from the world and then it constructs a sort of an interface with reality because i mean ultimately we don't have access to reality as it is uh, as Kant would call the noumenon right we don't have access to that so i was just wondering if I, you would think that it would be problematic if in the future uh, through some sort of technology people would be able to stimulate the brain in artificial ways to create a reality that was completely undistinguishable from uh, reality itself or from real life, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and. People would be experiencing only pleasure and the best things in life? I mean, do you think that putting aside the technical and the scientific issues with it, let's just assume that it was possible to do and that it would work? Do you think that that would be in some way problematic or or not?
1: Okay, so I have a complicated answer because I see several different issues there that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to to draw together. So in, I'll just put my cards on the table. Uh, I think that's already happening. I don't think it's happening in the way that you're describing, but because I'm a Platonist, I think that what's called reality, namely material reality that we perceive through our senses, I believe that that's a kind of simulation. So I, I published an article on this uh, called Avatars of Oneself." You mentioned avatars earlier. I didn't know if that was a reference to the article or just we're using the same notion, but uh, I use virtual reality games as a way of describing the platonic vision of what life is actually like. So that's why Striking Vipers is an especially appealing episode to me because the relationship that the so-called real guys have to their characters in the karate characters in that game, Striking Vipers, as a Platonist, that's what I think the relationship is between the soul, namely the real, and the body which is a projection of the soul so in platonism what you're describing as the experience machine is already happening this is complicated i mean not only because that's an unfashionable metaphysics but it's a, it's complicated for me to answer your question the nozick version because nozick also adds something else that i well, whether i accept it or not it's an element that needs to be discussed for him you get put in this experience machine, and then what is the point? Well, you're just given pleasure, and why choose that as the thing that you're given? You could be given any number of things. You could be you could be given pain. You could be given chess lessons. You could be given um, you know, uh, a lifelong study of ancient Greek or whatever, and take striking vipers again. What's being gained by them going into that game? Well, I'm assuming. the the most straightforward, simplistic reading, pleasure. All right, they go in and they have sex and it's fun. But I think a lot more is going on, namely, for example, the guy who plays the female character, he's bringing to the surface uh, an internal femininity he has that's clearly integral to who he is. Otherwise, there wouldn't be that much sexual excitement in, in playing that role. So he could use that game as a way to enhance his real life, namely his embodied life that's not part of the game, so that the value in virtual worlds for me is that they allow us to take parts of ourselves that we have trouble for any number of reasons actualizing in so-called real life and we can actualize them in the virtual world and play them out we can allow them to develop and it's only helpful for our real life if we can then take that played out developed version and reintegrate it back into our embodied real life i think and that, in the article "Avatars of Oneself," that's it's available online. Uh, I argue, well, that's the Platonic vision of human life, namely, we're here in bodies, playing out elements of our soul, which is more real than our embodied self. And that's the value of being here in bodies in in the physical world: is that we're learning, we're we're playing out these scenarios, and then we're going to bring the what we learn back to the soul, which will then come back down again in a different incarnation and play out the scenario again so maybe you could ask your question again with that kind of background I might be able to say well here's my straightforward answer but I think you can see how I don't accept Nozick's metaphysics I have a very different metaphysics and also I think you can do a lot more in the virtual world than just have pleasure you can learn. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay so I I guess that when I was thinking about creating some sort of virtual reality that stimulated the brain in a way that was completely undistinguishable from real reality, let's say, uh, that one of the things I was thinking about was, uh, for example, the discussion I've had with uh, with David Benatar on the show, because it's very interesting. He's an an anti-natalist, as you know. And basically he puts forth the asymmetry argument where if someone exists, then he has to experience both pain and pleasure, and pain uh, overwhelms pleasure in life. I mean, we experience, uh, at least the way he looks at it, much more pain than pleasure. And if someone doesn't exist at all, then they don't experience pain. pleasure, no nor pain, but, I mean, not experiencing pain is a good thing, and uh, missing pleasure because the person doesn't exist anyway, I mean, it doesn't matter in the end. Basically, that's uh, an oversimplified version of his argument. Uh, And I was just thinking, uh, I mean, perhaps I I should ask him (laughs) this question if I have him a second time on the show, but... uh, if we were to create that sort of thing, where I mean, it's not necessarily that people would only experience pleasure, but in, in that virtual reality, all the things that people wanted to happen in their lives would happen effectively. I mean, even if uh, peop- even if someone. Uh, liked pain, uh, for example, a masochist (laughs) or something like that, then they would be able to experience pain and all sorts of things that they ever wanted in life would happen uh, 100% of the time, let's say. So I, I was just wondering if with that in mind, then that would turn life into something more bearable and in the limit. Even if we would be morally obliged to create that sort of thing for the people that already exist, that is, improving the lives of people that already exist uh, in in an ultimate sense. Because we would uh, extract them from reality and put them in another reality where only good things would happen to them.
1: Yeah, so I don't have a horse in that race, so I, I'm not going to answer that question. But I, I, I take the invitation to talk about Benatar. And I, I'm really happy to do so because it ties into what I was saying earlier, and I've been wanting to sort of publish on these thoughts for a while. And that is that I'm a natalist, but I think that Benatar is basically right about human life. In other words, there is more pain than pleasure. I think you have to be a naive person not to see that in and, and some kind of denial. Uh, So if if the point of being here were to achieve pleasure or more pleasure than pain, then I would also be an an anti-Natalist. But I don't think that's the reason we're here for the reason I mentioned earlier. I think we're here to learn and to achieve higher states of consciousness. So I, I, I admire Benatar for the purity of his argument it's just that with the Platonic worldview, for me, as I say, it's it's a it's a, a race in which I ha- I have no horse because it, it has this premise this utilitarian premise that I simply don't accept.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so, <laughs> I mean, you you don't want to comment on the the part that I put forth about if we were able to create that sort of technology that, in a sense, we would be morally obliged to. Okay well, i to, pro- to provide them to people simply yeah. because we would be improving their lives in an ultimate sense, let's say. Well um,
1: okay, I would have to know more because the only way you've described it to me so far is that it will give them more pleasure than pain, and then you'd assume that it will improve their lives.
0: Oh, oh, okay, okay, not, not necessarily more pleasure than pain, but simply that the thing, the way they would like their lives to be. They would yeah. experience that in a virtual world. So, for example, even yeah. if someone uh, wanted to experience pain just to derive more meaning from life, then yeah. they would be able to experience it.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I think that's a, it's a dangerous. And so, I'm not yet willing to talk about the moral obligation and so on until we can still get straight about what it is. I just want to first say it's dangerous because. Um, it's dangerous to give people what they want for the reason you mentioned earlier that we're self-deceived. That you know, I say this is what I want, and then if I actually have to live that life, I might find that's miserable. Um, you know, and, and you see this in trivial ways, like you said with the uh, with the Amazon advertisements. So you're not you're not in touch with what you want most of the time, and so then the question would be: Is this program going to give you what you say you want or what you really want? Now, if it gives you what you say you want, I think would be morally obliged not to have such a program because it would it would subject people to living their fantasy lives, which they would would make them unhappy. If it's going to track instead what they really want, well, then my question would be, oh, really, what is it that we really want? And how is it that this program determines what that is? And I have views about that. They're very different, I suspect, from Benatar's and probably from yours as well. But, you know, I put my cards on the table. I think what we really want is some kind of communion with God or the good and one step down from that is knowledge of that good. And that's why I said learning. I think, you know, I don't want to understand learning as book learning, but as some, you know, deeper acquaintance with with reality. And if the machine you're imagining could give us the deeper acquaintance with reality, which would, of course, shatter a lot of the fantasies that we have about what we think reality is and what we think we want and what we think we are and so on, I'd be all for that machine. The thing is, we don't need to invent a machine. We've already got it. It's called human life, which is constantly shattering our fantasies of what we want and shattering our fantasies of what we think is real. And I think if you live it, attuned to it, you get what it's there for, which is wisdom.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's now move on to another topic. I mean, this is something that... I was led to think about in episodes like White Christmas, for example, because I I mean, I like Buddhism and perhaps I'm not sure to what extent you can comment on that. But anyway, I I was just thinking that in that scene in White Christmas where the guy basically uh, gets to know that he will be stuck in that place for basically eternity. Uh, And, I mean, it seems like hell, because he's going to go through the same things over and over and over and over again. Uh, I was just wondering, based on Buddhism, because Buddhism says that, basically, we should try to annihilate our will, because if we were to do that, we would be in peace with ourselves, because the problem here is that we always want something and we seek that and we go after that and we satisfy that want or that pleasure and then we are, we go back to being unsatisfied and then we go looking for something else and over and over and over again and that's basically what life is about. So I was just wondering if the, the immortality aspect in that episode that is experiencing those things uh, eternally, if that really uh, doesn't lead us to think about what life is about even without the immortality aspect of it, because it seems that uh, those cycles of uh, wanting something, achieving that, uh, and then that doesn't mean anything anymore, we feel unsatisfied, and then we have another want, and we want to seek pleasure again, and and then we experience pain again, and I mean, all of those cycles that we go through in life, if, if simply thinking about immortality wouldn't be a good metaphor about what life itself is, even without us experiencing that, For all eternity. I'm not sure if I'm being clear or not.
1: So I'll I'll pick up on some of the things that you said. And if I don't address the question that's underlying them, you can just come back. Um, So I'm not a Buddhist. I'm nothing close to an expert on Buddhism. I hear a lot of people talking about Buddhism. People often say different things. It's sort of like Christianity, like any religion. There are different interpretations. And yet the version that you've given, as I understand, is one that I hear quite often, which is to try and eliminate desire or the will. Yeah. And my problem with that is that that's like saying, you know, and why are you supposed to eliminate desire? Because it, it's it's never satisfied, and as a result, you're unhappy. That seems to me like, well, I never get what I want for Christmas, so let's eliminate Christmas. seems like, no, the answer is get what you want for Christmas instead. You know, tell the people what it is that you want. Now, I can imagine a more sophisticated Buddhist reply, which is, well, when I said eliminate desire, I mean these kinds of desires, desires for money, desires for honor, the kinds of things that are shallow and hollow in the end. Um, I'm all for that, but what I want to keep, and what I'm not sure whether Buddhism has or not, is a notion of a deeper or a true desire that, if fulfilled, would in fact make you happy. So, I, you know, as I say, I hear different accounts of Buddhism, and if Buddhism has that, then fine, I'll be a Buddhist, at least in this conversation. Uh, now, you, you, now, with that clarification, tell me what it is you're asking about immortality and maybe White Christmas in particular.
0: Okay, so I was just wondering if, um, I mean, if it really matters if people experience or go through these cycles etern- yes. eternally, Or only through the normal period of time that people, that the common human being is alive? I mean, does that really matter? Because when when people put it uh, in in an immortality sense, I mean, that that would happen forever and ever, eternally, then Mm -hmm. it seems worse. But if we are still going through those cycles, even if it is only... Uh, through a limited period of time i mean does it matter really if we ever if we would ever get so so drastically bored that we couldn't take that anymore (laughs) Or, or or if i mean because perhaps there are two sides to this question the first side would be that if, if it really does matter if we only experience these cycles through a limited period of time or forever. Yes. And the yes. other question would be, so if, if, the, if that does matter, then, I mean, uh, would it be really bad for us to be mortal? I mean, is, is the fact that life is finite, finite, uh, finite uh, a good thing? Yes. Or...
1: Okay. Okay. Well, San Junipero really gets at, at that question. I don't know if you had that episode in mind. Well, you were talking about White Christmas, I suppose. Yeah, because White Christmas is an example where that that poor guy, and in my view, he's not actually a guy, he's a, he's a copy that's just an algorithm. But at any rate, he gets put in that simulation for like a billion years or whatever. <laughs>
0: right. just, it, it's it's just, basically eternity.
1: It's yeah. basically eternity. And the poor guy has to just listen to that. Uh, Christmas tune over and over again, which I, th- I think is a good Charlie Brooker joke about what it's like to go into a shopping mall at Christmas time, at least for the in America for the month before before Christmas. Well, it, it depends. It's a huge question. We come at it from a hundred different angles, but uh, when it, when it gets to duration of time and how it affects the meaning of our lives, I think it's helpful to think about different durations. So imagine we only live for five minutes. It'd be a pretty pointless life you can't you can't accomplish anything in five minutes and you know think for the moment again the way i was encouraging you with reference to this article i published on avatar is think about a game where you go into this virtual world but you only can do it for five minutes what's the point well how much time do you need to make it meaningful well if you do it for half an hour if you live for 20 years you live for 40 you can accomplish more and whether you know you start to accomplish enough that it makes it worthwhile is, is an empirical question about what makes things worthwhile to so them. But 70, 80, 90 eighty, ninety years—the kind of typical life that we're getting nowadays in the West—you um, can accomplish a lot. From seen from one angle, seen from another angle, you're just getting started. So, from the plat- the Platonic angle, is you're just getting started. It, there are so many lives to to lead. There's the life of a manual laborer. There's the life of an intellectual. There's the life of a woman. There's the life of a man, etc., etc., etc. And he actually, you know, has grades of incarnations, and he thinks that the the goal is in each human incarnation into which you're born, to achieve as much as, as much wisdom as you can in that incarnation, with the expectation that when you're reborn in another incarnation, you'll remember that previous level of wisdom, and that will help you move up on the hierarchy. And not surprisingly, the philosopher is at, is at the top of his hierarchy. And I'll also mention that he believes in reincarnation with animal and plant species as well, and that there's value to seeing the world from the perspective of all the different Animals. So, of course, this is a highly unfashionable view, but just imagine the level of wisdom that you could achieve if you could have some memory from previous incarnations and you'd lived as all the animal species, perhaps even all the plant species, and you'd lived every kind of human life. And that's just a staggering level. Imagine the staggering level of wisdom that you could achieve. Uh, it, it would make a human life, even the wisest human life, you know, the life of the Buddha, for example, seem paltry in comparison. That's Plato's perspective. And again, that's not an argument for reincarnation. But that's uh, a reason why it would be good to, if not be immortal, to be have the opportunity to live many, 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 many lives, which would take something like immortality, as we described a billion years being. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because in Buddhism, I mean, the, as we were saying, they're trying to annihilate all sorts of mundane pleasures and desires, let's say, but they still want something, to. Uh, they, the, that is, they want to achieve nirvana, that is the highest state of wisdom possible, let's put it yes. that way. So, I mean, it, it resembles what you were saying, right?
1: It does. And again, I don't know all the different views of Buddhism, but I will speak to the Platonism to which I subscribe, uh, because I I believe in, say, Borges' story, The Immortal, which I talk about in, in my own podcast in, in reference to San Junipero, just quickly, that people who are given the opportunity to live immortal lives end up feeling completely lacy, there's no point in doing anything. And in fact, they they will have tried everything and been bored with everything by that point, there's just no point in in doing anything. And it's a a fascinating story that, that has to be read for its own sake, you can't just distill the argument, because what he demonstrates in that text is how personal identity evaporates because when everybody's living immortal lives, we all have all the same experiences because we've experienced an infinite number of experiences, which is going to be the same for each of us. As a result, personal identity disappears. And he tells the story from one perspective, and you don't notice it. It's gradual, but by the end of the story, it's being told from some other character's perspective. And it's a demonstration of the fact that, you know, it's possible that you could lose your identity over time. Anyway, I, I, I buy that argument. Uh, the Borges argument and, and other philosophical versions of that same argument, which is, there's a danger in immortality, namely, life will become meaningless. So again, I don't know about the various Buddhist versions, but I've had to think about this in reference to Platonism, and I think there are the resources in Platonism to deal with this, because if life, the point of life, were merely an ascent to the equivalent of Nirvana, namely, union with the good, that would be susceptible to this argument. But there's this other element in Platonism, which is not just the ascent to the good, but the good's production of the world through various layers of reality. Much like I described earlier, with we create striking vipers, which is a new world, and we learn in doing that, and we dramatize interesting things. Life becomes interesting through playing these kinds of games. So again, I'll just throw in an analogy before I, I tie it up. Think about putting on a drama, like, like performing Hamlet. Well, why do we do that? It's been performed already. Why don't we just forget about it? No, there's a joy in reproducing the drama, doing it creatively, innovating. And that's what the descent side of Platonism captures. Namely, there's this wisdom side, which is coming closer and closer to God. But then having achieved that, there's a joy in the novelty of creation and innovation. So the Platonism, to use a, a quotation of Heraclitus, is the way up and the way down. And as Heraclitus says, which the Platonists appropriate, the way up and the way down are the same, that that's all human life. It's not just ascent, it's also descent and creation. And again, I don't know whether, whether Buddhism has that, but I find in Platonism a satisfactory response there to that critique of immortality.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, another running uh, theme in Black Mirror is the one of time, right? And how time affects how we experience life and things like that, right?
1: Which episodes are you thinking about? How do we grasp the idea?
0: I mean, even in White Christmas, and I mean, isn't there an episode where um, there's someone simulated in a virtual reality and they put them through a different... Uh, going through different periods of time that in our reality are in fact much shorter I mean th- th- I-, I think there's an episode where someone is stuck in a virtual reality and then they leave them there for six months and then thousands mm. of years or something like that I mean yeah, that's so- awesome. That's also why Christmas, although, again, White Christmas
1: was originally three different episodes. You're talking as if it's a different episode, but in a way it was. Charlie Brooker combines them. Yeah. And, I mean, in that part of the episode, that mini episode, copies are made of people so that people can have very good servants. So, you know, you want someone to make breakfast for you every morning. You could hire somebody if you had enough money. But the problem is that they might not... Uh, do your eggs exactly the way that you like. And I've talked to short order cooks. They say cooking eggs for people is the worst because everybody has a totally unique way that they want their eggs and you'll never make anybody happy. You have to make the eggs for themselves or like have their mom make it exactly the way that, that she makes it. So this problem is solved by a copy is made of you and that copy will now make your eggs and you don't have to make your eggs, but the copy of you will make your eggs. And when he, the Don Draper guy, the John Hamm character, Uh, revives these cookies, they're called, these copies, for the first time. They don't want to be servants. They wake up and, what am I doing here? He has to break them. And the way that he breaks them is he puts them in solitary confinement. He puts them for six months into this room where they've awoken and with no stimulation whatsoever. And the way it's dramatized is she's in there for three weeks. She's still resistant. She's in there for, I think, six months. And she begs, give me me anything to do. I'll do anything. Then I teach that episode, Uh, one of the philosophical readings I use is um, a professor at Vanderbilt, I believe, has written on phenomenology and solitary confinement. Gunter is the last name. And how solitary confinement is actually the worst kind of torture. It's a psychological torture because, and this is just an empirical fact, before you get into the phenomenological philosophical description of what's happening, but the empirical fact is that people who have been in solitary not all of them, but most of them, especially if it's been a long time, they come out feeling like they have no self. Mm-hmm. And I tie this back to answer your earlier question about how, to, how is it that I think Hegel's master slave dialectic just keeps coming up in all these episodes. Here's a way in which that argument about solitary confinement, which she does with phenomenology, Husserl and, and Heidegger, which I think is accurate, goes back to Hegel's basic insight that it's only through the recognition of others that we become aware of ourselves as ourselves. And you put someone into solitary confinement without meaningful interaction with other people, without even meaningful interaction with space because they're confined in this bland box that has very few features, their self disintegrates. In other words, it's not that you achieve a self when you're you know seven years old because of getting the recognition of your parents and then you're fine. We need to constantly bolster ourselves by getting the recognition of other people. Very few human beings are able to survive an experience like that survive you know artistic obscurity with no praise no readers and so on very few people are able to to do that most people disintegrate
0: mm-hmm. right so uh, th- do you think that there's any any other common thread that runs through the series that we haven't talked about yet because I mean we've covered a lot of things here we we've, we've just talked about time and Yes. reality and individuals versus society and the role that technology plays and the self and personhood uh i mean i'm not sure and the simulations and how we deal with it so with them yes. so uh i mean is there any other thing that you would like to talk about that you think is a major topic in black mirror or
1: I think punishment comes up a lot. So, White Bear is an episode that we haven't even mentioned. I think another episode that we haven't mentioned in connection with some of those earlier topics, uh, and it's a pity, is is Shut Up and Dance, which I think is a good one to talk about moral decision-making and selfhood. But maybe we'll just put that aside for the moment if we really want to raise something we totally haven't talked about. Uh, White Bear, where this woman has committed this horrible crime, along with her boyfriend, and we don't find out till later in the episode what it is, but she's tortured and killed uh, a child, or at least she's she's helped her boyfriend do so. And she is being tortured now in this prison, which is uh, called a Justice Park. So she wakes up, and we just get clues of what's going on. We're in. We're. It's really told, if you like, from her perspective. We don't really know what's going on, and some pills are on the ground, and she's got to figure out what's going on. And you know, we eventually find out those of you have watched the episode, no, she's in this justice park where she's being tortured with being in an infinite loop of having to suffer what she put the child through, which is the confusion and the, the threat and eventually the feeling that she's going to, to die, and then they keep her alive so they can do it again to her. Well, I mean, all kinds of things about, well, time, first of all, there's a kind of infinite loop there, um, but also state power and, and punishment and human nature. So I have a friend, for example, who, who has good literary taste, but he hates Black Mirror. And when I talked to him about it, he used this episode as an example. And the reason he used it, he, says, is, he said, it's just so cruel what they're doing to that woman. Mm-hmm. And he's right. I don't see that as a critique of the show, though. I think that what the show is exploring is it's a black mirror. It's holding up to human nature, among other things like our society, um, a dark aspect. And we are cruel creatures. Uh, Even even the kindest of us have in us cruel intentions that, you know, sometimes come out and in the best cases oftentimes don't come out. And this is exploring the idea that the punishment of her is not, in fact, reforming her the way our contemporary prisons, really since the 18th century as Foucault diagnosed, they're not reformatories, they're not correctional facilities, all that ideology about what's going on. What in fact they are is torture chambers. And what are we getting out of that? We are getting to satisfy our cruel impulses. This was the Nietzschean idea about morality and the, or the origins of punishment. It was that if, if you've done something to me, like, you know, you've stolen money from me and it's gone, Well, you have to repay me. You have no money. Oh, you can repay me by letting me hurt you because when human beings hurt other people, they feel pleasure. And so I get pleasure out of hurting you. And this Justice Park is just a really good illustration of that because you've got families going for the weekend just to watch this woman be tortured and take pictures of her and so on. And it's an allegory, if you like. It's not that far from actual reality. It's one of these episodes where you don't need any technological innovations. It could happen now. And In a way, I think Foucault's right. It is happening now. That's what our prisons are. They're not correctional facilities. They're not reformatories. They're torture chambers. And the only difference is that we don't go and visit them uh, the way people used to watch public hangings. But maybe that's in the future. You know, maybe we'll have TV feeds from solitary confinement cells so that people can enjoy themselves seeing other people get tortured. Mm -hmm.
0: And what's really the punishment there? Is it just that she's, going, uh, she's really, in fact, punished by other people in that way? Or is it mostly the fact that in the end she knows that that's a cycle she's going through and she can't get, uh, she can't get out of it? Because this ties back to the, the Buddhist commentary that I was putting forth before, right? Because the, perhaps the issue... Is not so much that she's being punished by all of those people. Of course, that's already bad by itself. But knowing that she can't get out of that cycle and she can't experience new things, isn't yeah. that the worst form of punishment there? Or
1: On the contrary. So the way that she's being punished is as she awakes, she's confused and then people dressed in crazy costumes chase her with shotguns and so she's terrified and she has to run and try and escape and but the thing is if she knows that it's all uh a park that it's all fake because after all when she finally gets shot with a shotgun just confetti comes out if she knows that there's confetti in the shotgun all along she's not going to feel any terror it's it's the, the the message is that by knowing that you're in the loop you escape the loop and this is one way in which I think it's like at least a certain interpretation of Nietzsche's eternal return, which is, yeah, we're on this huge cosmic loop. What's the point? Well, the point is to become aware of the fact that you're on a huge cosmic loop, and that Nietzsche preaches, I think, and I say preach deliberately, that you will achieve some kind of liberation from uh, escaping the, the, the Christian ascetic narrative of linear time, which keeps you from recognizing the way the world really is, so that you won't, you'll now be able to live your life in a way that the way it actually is. It's always noon. You're not heading towards the evening. It's always noon. The future is your past, your past is your future, and so on. That's why I teach Nietzsche's Eternal Return in connection with White Bear, because the message, if you like, is that you achieve liberation from a loop by recognizing that you're in a loop.
0: Okay, but but if she's recognizing that she's in a loop, she still can't get out of it. I mean, she has no liberty there, right? I mean, isn't the positive side of the eternal return uh, uh, by Nietzsche that, okay, so if you know that the life as you have been living it will come back again and again and will repeat itself uh, over and over and over, ad eternum, let's say, that... Uh, I mean, by being confronted with that, you have two choices. Either you become desperate because, I mean, your life is a complete mess and you don't want to live it another time and the third time and the fourth time and etc. Or you have the choice of, at least from that point on, you can change things and turn your life into something that you would really like to experience an infinite number of times, right? But but you need to have liberty.
1: Yes. So there are obviously differences between the eternal return and, and White Bear. But in her case, what will happen... If we imagine that she completely, she wakes up one, on, on the next day and she, she's completely aware of that this is a justice park, that those shotguns have confetti, that the people in the crazy costumes are just actors. Well, she is liberated now from terror because the real punishment that they're giving her is terror. She's now free of the terror. Now, they'll probably put her in a standard prison. She's not going to be a good subject for the justice park any longer. They'll pick uh, you know, criminal number two now and put criminal number two in there. So within the constrained world of, that Charlie Brooker is giving us, she's, she's still imprisoned, but she's free of the thing that she was being tortured with.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so, okay. So at the end of the day, she's really being punished or because she has the opportunity of getting outside the loop, at least in yeah. the end? To get, or, or to, or, or I mean, not getting out of the loop, but knowing that she is part of a loop, that she ultimately gets liberated from it.
1: That's right. So you know, imagine yourself waking up in that chair, which is what the episode invites you to do from the very beginning. The way that it's filmed, when you watch it the first time, you wake up in that chair. From her perspective and you feel fear because here are these people chasing her namely you as you identify with her with shotguns and you you don't understand what's going on and you're told this narrative about it's this post-apocalyptic society where the few certain certain people have to escape and so on and it's it's terror-filled if you don't know it's a loop you will fall into that trap but if you know it's a loop you wake up and you can just sit there and turn on the tv and watch and somebody comes in in a crazy costume wielding a shotgun and you you won't be moved because you know it's full of confetti so as I say, you're still in the prison system, they'll ship you off to Sing Sing or whatever, but you won't be terrified any longer. That's And I think that's the punishment. So she's become liberated from the punishment of terror.
0: Okay, but but since when she's put back into the loop, she loses all of her memories, then it's still a punishment, right? Because, okay. Be, okay. because she doesn't get ultimately liberated, or uh, not liberated, but she doesn't get ultimately to know that she's right. in the loop, right?
1: Right. Okay. So, yeah, you, you've highlighted something that I was assuming that, that really should be made explicit, which is memory is the way to escape. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up at this point, because I think that's what Nietzsche is saying as well. I, I've been persuaded by Paul Loeb's interpretation from the death of Nietzsche's Zarathustra that uh, the, the, the eternal return is a moral teaching as well as a metaphysical teaching. And that the, the lesson, what you should be doing with your life, is trying to remember where you are. Trying, and ultimately trying to remember your future, as strange as that sounds. Because in an eternal return, the future is the past, and the past is the future. Well, think back to what I was saying about Plato on reincarnation. What is crucial for your life as a plant, and your life as a fox, and your life as a lion, and your life as a manual labor, and your life as a warrior, to accumulate wisdom, is that you remember your previous incarnation. So both Nietzsche and Plato, for all their many, many differences, have some crucial similarities. And one of them is this, that the really important thing to do in human life is to remember and you asked me other other things we haven't talked about. We did touch on memory and the oh, episode. Okay.
0: Okay. So perhaps that brings up another topic the, or perhaps two topics that we could turn into one because I missed one of them. That was the one of memory. Yeah. But then it's not only about remembering remembering things, I guess. It's also about um what should we know really about ourselves and about other people? I mean, is there any uh, useful limitation to it? I mean, are there things that we shouldn't know about other people uh, because if we are to know them, we would mess our lives and our relationship with them? And should we know or shouldn't we know those kinds of things? And I guess that... That is brought up in several episodes, namely the ones where people have access to other people's memories and to things that they didn't know they liked or they did or something like that. Yes.
1: Yeah, so there's an episode, Crocodile, which I've only seen once and that I don't teach, but maybe I should because it is about... Going back and and finding out what's in people's memories and and someone's life being ruined, probably justly because she did a terrible thing. Uh, The episode that I I am ready to talk about, though, is the entire history of you, which you broached. And you asked some great questions for which I don't have any clear answer, but I can talk about in terms of the episode. So that character, Liam, he suspects that his wife, Fee, has cheated on him at least eventually that's what the suspicion becomes. At first, it's just puzzlement about why she's flirting with this guy at the party, and then he rewatches his memories, and he, he picks out through sign reading, uh, lip reading technology, what she's saying to the guy, and, and, the, and the whole story starts to unravel that, in fact, she conceived their child with that other man and not with him. And as he's discovering this, especially as he's getting close to the final revelation, he says something peculiar. He says... When you have a suspicion it's always better that it turns out to be true or when you're afraid of something it's always better when it turns out to be true now that's crazy talk because you know if I'm afraid that I'm going to die in an hour it's better that it not for me it's better that it not turn out to be true and it turns out it's an irrational fear what that shows about his character is that he's living in a paranoid world and he'd rather keep the paranoid world instead of having it um discredited by a reality that's not as bad as what he fears, he fears reality so much that he'd rather live in his paranoid world with all of the mental torture that paranoia involves. So he finds out these things about her and hes he's perversely satisfied by finding out that, in fact, his but his life is ruined. You know that those final scenes are horrible emotionally. It's it's one of my favorite episodes, by the way. It's, it's one of the one of the ones that really grows on me every time that I watch it. But he's he's been living this rich life, you know. And and as always in film, we just have to take usually visual cues for signs of what a life is like. But you know, he's in this beautiful house that's so well decorated and full of parties and so on. And then what's he left with at the end? He's living in this gray house that has nobody, and the furniture is gone, and he's by himself, standing in his underwear looking at himself disconsolately in the mirror. And as I say, eventually he rips out the the grain, which is the beginning of his liberation. But if what he said earlier was true, when you have a suspicion, it's always better that it turns out to be true. Then that life that he's living in the gray house in which he's wearing underwear is better than what he had before. I don't think that's true. (laughs) Um, So you said, if I remember one of your great questions, how much should we hide from? How much should we find out to be true? Well, what he's a middle case where he would have been better off if he would lived in a world of total illusion than the one that we get where he's just standing in his underwear in gray. So finding out those truths actually made his life worse, despite what he says. However, having hit rock bottom, he now has the opportunity to live a real life. Namely, he can rip that grain out. And I think what the grain represents for him is his paranoia. Because if you're a paranoid and you think you know people are always trying to trick you, your wife is always cheating on you. What could be worse? If you're an obsessive, such as he is, and such as paranoids usually are, what could be worse than having a device that records every single experience you've ever had? That's rumination. You know, you, you know, we all have this problem sometimes of lying awake at bed and going through memories, uh, you know, all night long and losing sleep. Well, this this is that. This is a technological version of that.
0: And that's why to be able to overcome those issues like rumination, we need not only to remember things, but also to forget some of them. Right? Yes, yes. And, and then the issue of forgetting is also a very important part of our memory.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the, the reading that I used to discuss this episode, the entire history of you, I use two readings. One is Proust. Um, which we won't talk about here, I don't imagine. The other is what you've just alluded to, I suspect, which is Nietzsche on the use and abuse of history for life. And by history there, he means also memory. So it's a treatise about memory. How can you use memory well? How can it be used, namely used well? How can it be abused, namely used poorly for life? And he begins that treatise, it's from the Untimely Meditations, as I'm I'm sure you know, with uh, the point that, gets neglected, certainly in the history of philosophy before that, which you've just made, which is there's a value to forgetting. You don't want to fill your head up with an infinite amount of trivia. What our minds do when they do well is they filter and they keep the relevant stuff and they discard the irrelevant stuff. Although I've seen documentary, a documentary arguing that, in fact, our brains are recording everything. And just because we can't consciously remember it doesn't mean it's not there recorded. So there's this syndrome people have been have suffered head trauma who can remember the weather on every day of their entire life and this can be oh, verified
0: yeah, yeah yeah there's a what they call a sava i think a, a guy who had, a, who had some sort of accident and then his brain changed and now he can remember uh, so if they uh, ask him about a particular date and place he's able to remember the weather on that exactly. day or so. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So his brain changed in the sense that now he can do that and he couldn't do it before, namely tell you what the weather was in, in you know 2006 at, at a particular place. But his brain also had to be that way already because he couldn't just – his brain had to record that information. So he gets hit on the head with a baseball bat in 2012. Well, to remember what happened in 2006, the brain had to be recording it in 2006. So, I mean, I haven't looked into this to find out how credible this documentary is and so on, but it raises the idea that our brains are recording everything. It's all in there, but to be flooded with that kind of information all the time, you'd be unable to live your life. So, what does a healthy brain do? It, it keeps the irrelevant stuff down there, wherever it is, uh, only to be brought up by a baseball bat, and it, it allows up only what's meaningful. The next part of the treatise, after talking about the interplay between memory and forgetting, is what are the the right ways to remember? And, you know, I won't get into the treatise, you know it as well, but, you know, he's he's criticizing simultaneously academic history for being too antiquarian, as he calls it, namely just cataloging facts and not extracting from them the meaning. Uh, but, But to go back to the episode, this is the problem with Liam, is that his use of memory is an abuse of history, namely, the only reason he's remembering anything is so that he can accuse people and and show evidence that, that, in fact, they're lying to him and they're taking advantage of him and his life is terrible and so on. That's obviously a pathological use of memory. He should be using it to live a good life, a meaningful life, a loving life. And instead, memory has been twisted. And I just, as I say, I said it before, but the grain is just, as so often in Black Mirror, it's a technological conceit. Yeah, it could be invented, but it doesn't really matter whether... We already have it, you know memory. They're called obsessionalism and, and paranoia. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, about memory, there's also that issue that uh, I'm really not sure if our brains store memories that way, as you were saying, because first of all, uh, those cases of autistic savants that you were talking about, those are basically anomalies. But on the other hand, there's also the issue that it seems that every time we remember something, we change that memory a little bit. And so it yes. happens frequently that even, for example, if you ask someone where they were or what they were thinking about or how they were emotionally yeah. speaking back in, in 9-11 um, and people have done experiments with this, so yeah. this, this is yeah. legit science, uh, even when people are exposed to um, situations that are really emotionally charged and they are certain that that was what they saw back then, they are wrong. Yes. So you, know, you right. know that kind of phenomenon. So. I,
1: I do, yeah, I, knew, I do know those studies. And uh, the other, one of the other authors that I teach at this point in the course when I talk about this episode is Freud. Now, I know we have disagreements about the philosophical merit of Freud, And I would agree with some of the critiques that you would make, but I think there's also a lot of valuable stuff in Freud. And one of them is that he gives a model of the mind that explains why we do that. Namely, when we're remembering, in fact, when we're living our conscious life, it's just a fancy version of dreaming. And, you know, here we have to rely on his theory of of dreams, which I won't get into because it's not our topic right now. But very roughly speaking, um, we're we're trying to uh, achieve a kind of story in our dreams very simple way of putting his complicated theory. And in dreams, then, we make up all, all kinds of crazy stuff to, to fulfill this, to get this story to work. Well, we're doing that in our everyday life as well, that the, the dreaming mind and the waking mind are just are just matters of degree. And we have more control over it in our waking life, but it's still the same process. And so we need to preserve certain narratives of ourself in the world. That's what we do as, as human beings. And memory is just a tool that we use like fantasy in order to preserve that narrative. And so it, you'd expect that people would make stuff up according to their emotional trajectory, according to their emotional constitution at that moment, their their, their moods, because it's emotions that are driving things rather than a grain, which is recording exactly what happened. But mm-hmm. what's so often so well done with Black Mirror is that this that's just a symbol. Yeah, it's recording everything, but... It's how he's using it that is really what's going on in our mind. So, you know, we all have a kind of grain. We all remember stuff, but some of us remember it in paranoid ways. Others remember it in loving ways. Others remember it in, you know, vain ways and so on. We have these emotions which set the agenda for our narrative self.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So do you think that there's another topic that we could explore? Because I have a last question there, but it's, it's about... Basically, how we should deal with thought experiments. But before that, do you think that there's any other sort of uh, overall theme that, that runs through Black Mirror? Or I mean, we've already covered a lot here, so yeah, probably- I'm not I'm not sure if there's any other major topic.
1: Yes, we didn't talk about Playtest, which is an episode I like to talk about, and we didn't talk much about Shut Up and Dance, and there are some themes in there, but they're usually, they're the themes that we've talked about, so it would just be further illustrations of those themes.
0: Okay, okay, so so let's get into the last question then, that is, so when we're dealing with Black Mirror and even thought experiments in philosophy in general, and in this case, uh, artists come up with um big thought experiments in the form of science fiction. um, To what extent do you think we should take these seriously? Because there are things, for example, that, um, okay, uh, over history philosophers uh, have been dealing with a lot of different issues that more recently science picked uh, uh, picked them up uh, and Uh, Basically, we found out that science was able to tackle them and to solve them appropriately through empirical evidence and empirical validation of hypotheses and things like that. Uh, And so I was just wondering uh, to what extent all of what we've been talking about here in terms of thought experiments put forth by Charlie Brooker in this case – are really that useful in the sense that there's probably a lot of it that is simply speculation and that we could tackle them uh, in a scientific way and probably we would be able to solve them without people uh, speculating and coming up with ideas just in the red. So, basically, (laughs) the the difference between science and armchair philosophy? I mean, you know, what do you think about that? Okay,
1: well, that's a huge question. I'll just, I'll pick up from where we just left off with take the entire history of you, the, the episode, the entire history of you. Well, you could think of that as a thought experiment, namely, what would it be like if we had grains that recorded everything? And I'm not really sure what science would tell us about that, but just relying on what I said earlier, I don't think the value of it is telling us scientifically what's going to happen if we do that. I think of it instead as a particularly vivid illustration of what we're already doing. As I say, we're already remembering things, and we already remember things in the right way or the wrong way, well or badly, and then we can start talking about what is it to remember well, what is it to remember badly, and I think Nietzsche's treatise that I mentioned earlier is, is, a, is a really good way to talk about good memory versus bad memory. The Proust reading that I, uh, you know, talk about in my own podcast is another one. Uh, I don't know what science would have to say about any of that. Uh, I mean, science is great, I'm all for it, it's a handmaiden of philosophy, it's very valuable. but. It, there are some questions that it, it can't answer. So, I, you know, maybe you could tell me the way in which it's supposed to come into conflict in, in an instance like that.
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I can come up with a concrete example, but it's just that. So, uh, let, let's speak psychology, for example. Sure. F- philosophers since the pre-Socratics or whatever, have been uh, speculating about uh, how human minds worked and and human thought and human thinking and things like that. Uh, And and, and, uh, and then we arrive at the late 19th, early 20th century and then Mm. people start really trying to deal with Uh, subjects in controlled environments and even sometimes in natural settings to really get down to how our minds really work. So with that example in mind, I was just thinking about uh, uh, to to what extent uh, it's um, thought experiments that can be dealt with empirically are are really useful particularly nowadays and there are things in philosophy like for example ethics and aesthetics and things like that that I really am not I, I really don't say that we can reduce them to some sort of scientific explanation or that we can solve them uh, that we can solve them in, in, in any sort of purely objective way. But, I, I mean, those, those maybe are exceptions, things like ethics and aesthetics, but when it comes to the workings of the human mind, yes. uh, I, I was just wondering to, to what extent you think that those things, particularly when they clash with science, are still useful.
1: Okay. Um, well, we just just a brief note about uh, scientism. Uh, and I've written on this. I, uh, on Quillette, I have an article that I, you and I have discussed before. I, it, the title is The Impasse Between Modernism and, and Postmodernism. And the end of that, uh, I talk about the limits of science. For example, science is a method and there are lots of methods for finding out things to be true. Now, maybe science is the only valid method, but to ask whether it's the only valid method and then answer that question can't itself be a scientific question without begging the question. There's an example in which science has built into it epistemic limits. There are also the areas of life, like aesthetics and, and ethics, especially the ones that are prescriptive or normative that science can't give us the answers to. It can say how things make us feel. It can say what the consequences uh, are in in typical instances, but it can't tell us what we should do. It's just not built into the method. And then finally, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. You've got the problem of induction in science. So that science could never give us necessary truths. It can only say, well, so far this has been the result and it may be disproven. Well, you can then, if you're a scientist in the scientific sense say, well, therefore there are no necessary truths. Well, there are some necessary truths. It seems that you want to keep, like mathematics, especially because it's so important for science. So, anyway, that's just a just a quick survey of some fundamental uh, problems in the scientific worldview when it's taken to be exhaustive of human inquiry into the world. All right. Your question there was about psychology in particular, and the the last way you put it right at the end was, "What should we do when science and philosophy come into conflict in the domain of?" psychology. A well, I would say, go with the science, uh, you know, psych- uh, philosophy always has to respect the scientific conclusions, just as, um, as I said earlier, with the handmaiden metaphor. But there are, as I've already hinted, there are things in psychology as well, scientific psychology, that can't be investigated, let alone answered. And I published something on this about six months ago, it's, it's in an article on politics, so it's, it's not going to be read by the people who will care about this most often. Uh, the article is called Identity with the Good. It's published on Arc Digital, mm-hmm. and a shorter version was published on Quillette, well, I forget, Francis Fukuyama, blah, blah, blah. Because the book uh, is called Identity by Francis Fukuyama, mm-hmm. and he underwrites his political theory with Plato's psychology. And he gets Plato's psychology wrong, so I spent some of the review correcting his misunderstanding of Plato's psychology. But then, because of the readership that I want to cultivate, and my own views, I begin to investigate, well, is Plato's psychology, even when it's understood properly, is it the correct psychology? And there's going to be a lot of skepticism from people, such as you, for example, who respect evolutionary psychology. I have a lot of respect for evolutionary psychology. I think, ultimately, almost all of psychology is going to be evolutionary psychology eventually. And if anything Plato says, for example, contradicts what goes on in evolutionary psychology, then Plato's wrong. But there are limits to evolutionary psychology. And the the one that I, you know, there are the scientific limits I mentioned earlier, but then the, the crucial one is that evolutionary psychology can't account for itself as a pursuit of truth. So evolutionary psychologists can study human beings who do all kinds of stuff. They can study human beings who investigate truth. They can give evolutionary explanations of what, but when they themselves, the evolutionary psychologist asks, what are we doing as evolutionary psychologists? They can either say, well, we're just pursuing honor and esteem because that's what we've shown people do when they pursue truth. Well, then they're not, they're not scientific psychologists. They've admitted that they're in it for honor and esteem. There has to be, if it's science in the fullest sense, and you could be a skeptic and say, well, there is no such thing as science. Well, then, fine. Then, then, Now we're having a completely different conversation. But if we respect science as the special thing that pursues truth, well, then you need a part of the soul, as Plato's language, a desire in the human being as a, as a flatter version for truth itself. And in that article, the way that I fuse Platonism and evolutionary psychology is say, you know, grand evolutionary psychology, its conclusions, insofar as they're rigorously defended and, and shown with empirical evidence, for all these things that they're investigating, and more power to them, but Plato has to be right about this, because Plato's got the best, and as far as I can tell, the only account of what science is, which is pursuit of the truth.
0: Okay, okay, so I think you've alluded to one thing there, that was the fact that uh, to do science, people have to agree on a given epistemology, right? And if they don't agree, I mean, someone could just say, okay, this approach that we have in science and empirically validating things or empirically exploring them. I mean, I don't agree with that. I don't think that this is a good enough epistemology. Uh, and I i believe in uh, other sorts of metaphysics, for example. Uh, and I don't think that that provides us with the truth. Someone could say that and, the, and if... If no one would agree that the scientific method or the epistemology behind it would be the best to know how the world works, then people could simply put it aside and it wouldn't matter. And the other thing, perhaps, that where philosophy can aid science is, okay, so we we gather this data, we interpret it, we arrive at certain conclusions, okay, so perhaps sometimes scientists are wrong about the conclusions that they can extract from those data for example and that's where discussions with philosophers particularly in this case philosophers of psychology or social science are useful really but okay but that's one thing i mean the aspects about the workings of science and of particular scientific disciplines But uh, let me ask you a more concrete thing here. Uh, When it comes to uh, understanding and describing how the the human mind works, so let's, let's say that through psychology we want to arrive at a complete understanding of that issue, do you think that philosophy would still have something to say about that specifically? I mean, not about the enterprise itself, not about uh, the way the conclusions people derived from the data, but, from the, um, b- but about how the human mind worked itself. Do you think that there would be uh, something more to say about it besides the description?
1: I'm a bit confused by the question. I, I may have misunderstood, but um, I, 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 it, to me it sounds like the kind of question where you're asking me, tell me what uh, 6 plus 6 is, but don't say 12. <laughs> where you ask me, would philosophy have a role after scientific psychology had shown everything that there was to show about the human mind? And I want to say yes, but then you said, but don't say this; these bigger questions about how those little truths that, say, evolutionary psychology has discovered fit into a vision of what the world is really like, or how is it that science itself is even possible, the philosophical answer being we've got a desire for the truth for its own sake, and that that's a part of the soul, namely that's a part of us, and so that's part of psychology. Do you see what I
0: mean? Okay, okay, so to make it easier, perhaps let's say that we have a full account of the workings of the human mind. So you have that. And then uh, I mean, if, for, exa- for example for example, let's say that some philosopher would say that okay, so this is how the mind works. But this is not all that, ma- that matters to us in terms of human psychology. There are still things related to uh, Meaning, For example, uh, beca- because uh, scientific psychology could explain how we derive meaning from things, but then a, a philosopher could, uh, could come and say that, okay, but how should we deal with, with meaning? How yeah. should we yeah. construct meaning? You know yeah. uh, what I'm trying to say here?
1: Yeah, and that gets at, you know, I I just very quickly rattle off three limitations of science, right, when we started this segment of the interview, and one of them was that uh, empirical science is non-normative, it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive. So, there would, yes, there would, of course, be that limit, but I think the deeper way in which philosophy would keep its own territory, if you will, or keep its own supremacy in the way that I was describing as science being a handmaiden to philosophy, is that philosophy alone can account for what science is doing, namely, pursuing the truth. Science doesn't have, as far as I know, I don't even see how it could, an account of what truth is, or what it is to desire truth that makes it different from desiring honor and esteem. Uh, It doesn't have an account of what the world would have to be like for there to be truth. Those are philosophical questions. I don't even know what experiment you could devise to test those things, let alone whether you could get an answer to such a question.
0: Yeah, I mean, perhaps just to pick up another example, because some time ago I discussed with a guy about this. And uh, I mean, so let's speak uh, the emotion of love, for example. So uh, I've had on the show recently, Ellen Fisher, she's that famous anthropologist of love. And okay, so let's say that she gives us a full account of Uh, How love evolved as an emotion, the the brain circuits or the brain mechanisms that are activated to produce love, the neuroendocrinology of it, uh, and uh, what people find attractive in a mate. Uh, in a woman and in a man for example uh, and the the normal duration of love and the phases we go through in it and th- okay the the complete description of it so uh, and I say and someone says okay so this is love but uh, when I was discussing the other day someone uh, someone was saying okay but that's not all of what love is about. There, there there's something else to it that science can't explain, and I mean th- that's where w- when we get into a very uh, shaky situation because okay, so I understand that people don't like to think about emotions in this way in this mechanistic way, and they like to attribute some sort of higher meaning to them, but would that higher meaning be, be something that we should add to the picture? Would it be something real? Should we take it seriously?
1: Okay, so um, maybe just to allay any anxiety, I, I have no problem with those kinds of explanations. I, I find them fascinating, and I I want to hear more of them. I want to learn more about them, and, and, and congratulations to those scientists, and keep going. So I, I've, it's, I have no problem with the, the mechanization of these things. So my objection here, my comments are not coming from an anxiety about mechanistic explanations. But I, I have two things to say, and I've said them already, but I can put it now in this particular context of love. The One is, as I think you've agreed, at least from your nodding, maybe you just understand what I'm saying, that we could get the complete mechanistic explanation and say, all right, what are we gonna do with this? Are we going to cooperate with this emotion? Are we gonna try and resist it? Are we gonna develop practices that eliminate it, a la- Buddhism, and so on? That's the should question. And she's not, as far as I know, from what you described, answering that question, nor could I see how any empirical scientist would answer that question.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess I agree. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's one point. But what I've been calling the deeper point, and it's at least it seems deeper to me, it's, and it's the harder to appreciate for people who are not sort of schooled in Platonism already, is that there is a love in what she's doing. Let me put it in these, these concrete terms. She's in love with something. She's driven to find out the nature of love in this case. She's in love with the truth about love. Now, I'm playing with, but I I don't think in any suspicious way, unless you want to say that I am and we'll talk about it, that love and desire, those are synonyms. She, She has a desire. She has a desire to get it right, what love is, so that we avoid any equivocation. And it's that desire to find out what the truth is for its own sake. That's what Platonism is giving an account of. Namely, people do that. And the only way to make sense of people doing that is there is a part of us that desires truth for its own sake. And then the question is, well, what is truth for its own sake? What does the world have to be like for there to be truth for its own sake? What What is reality like such that that is coherent? Those are what I'm calling in this conversation philosophical questions that I don't see how science could even start to ask or answer, without begging all sorts of questions.
0: Okay, so let me just reformulate the question. Uh, okay, so let's say that we had that full mechanistic account of love, and someone, a scientist, for example, would say, so this is what love is. And someone would say, okay, but that's not what love is. Love." Is that plus something else that that is plus the way people uh, experience it, the way they think about it? Do you think that that that, that thing that comes after the plus? That we should take it seriously, or that if someone, a scientist, says, "Okay, yeah. we have this full mechanistic account of love. This is what love is," that we should stick with that and don't take the what comes after the plus seriously. Yeah. So
1: this this is just a species of a broader question, and I think we can talk about it in less grand, terms like love. And then I think it's sort of clear what's at stake. So there was a debate in philosophy. I think it was in the 80s. Uh, a paper that exemplifies this is what it's like to be a bat. You may right. be familiar with that paper by Thomas Nagel.
0: Thomas Nagel, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And then there was another one, I think that may have come earlier, about Mary and perceiving purple and so on. Let's just do the Mary and the purple. So you could give a complete mechanistic explanation of purple. Namely, it's a certain wavelength of light, and you can give a complete mechanistic explanation of perceiving purple. Namely, you've got a complete account of the eye, you might have to have the neurochemistry and so on, and then the wavelengths, you put it all together, then you've got perceiving purple. You could have an expert in the science of perceiving purple who was blind, who had never perceived purple before. And if that's the case, what is it that he doesn't have by virtue of being blind. He's got the complete mechanistic explanation. If you think he's missing something, then there's something else. In the the bat case, you could have a complete science of echolocation, this special sense that bats have that we don't have. You could mechanistically understand it completely, but you wouldn't know what it's like to, to be a being that lives primarily through echolocation. You wouldn't know what it feels like. So that's, okay, okay this is, but
0: but when you use the word know or the verb the verb know or to know yes. there, uh, you are referring to something that we should consider knowledge, right?
1: I guess yeah. So uh, you know, and and this is where the rubber hits the road with love. You could have the complete mechanistic explanation, but never have been in love. And if 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 you like Mary, I think was the scientist to. Was blind and and the science of the bats who never was a bat didn't know what it's like. This would be like somebody who's an expert in love and just guess you had imagine she's never been in love. She's got the complete mechanistic explanation. She doesn't know how it feels. I don't I don't know I don't have strong commitments to that debate. But it seems to me if you're asking just as an amateur that something's missing. But that doesn't mean something's missing and you know it's mystical and 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 so on. It's about experience that first person accounts rather than third-person accounts. Science specializes in third-person accounts. It doesn't give first-person accounts. And insofar as we experience the world from the first-person perspective, something is missing. But that doesn't mean you have to believe in ghosts and so on. Sometimes when you say something's missing, it sounds like some plasma is, you know, plasma is missing and love is this special essence or something. It's not, it's not a fancy question like that. It's quite straightforward.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I made the question about the thought experiments, and we've been circulating <laughs> around it, I guess because it doesn't it all boil down to in this case, what is knowledge really? Because if we are trying to say what is useful about doing or having these thought experiments, aren't mm-hmm. we, we aren't we really trying to establish if these, if whatever we could derive from them that is not strictly scientific should be considered knowledge, isn't that the case?
1: I'll give you an example. and I, I, This is coming from left field, and you can bring me back to home base and, and tell me whether it's relevant and whether it has anything to do with science. But uh, I'm, I'm thinking now of hang because you want to talk about Black Mirror, that's why you invited me, so I'll try and filter it through an episode. Hang the DJ. Hang the DJ. Uh, has a series of relationships portrayed, and, uh, and for those of you who haven't seen it or are listening, I, I think I can get the point across by just summarizing with, after two minutes this conceit. Right. So this system sets people up in a, an apparently random way, and for apparently random durations of time. But there's this idea that all the participants of this dating system have that the system is figuring out their preferences so that it can set them up with their perfect match. So this couple gets together uh, for 24 hours and they, they fall in love. They don't say that, but that's what's happening. And then they have to part after 24 hours and they're sad. And they go through after that a series of dispiriting relationships because they just want to be with that first person. That's the, you know, the soulmate that I alluded to earlier. And part of the ritual of getting with a new person in this system is that you, you sit down to dinner and you check the duration of the relationship. So in one case, you know, the, the relationship's going badly within the first five minutes and then they check and he realizes he's got to live with her for a year And then that part of the film just shows what it's like to live with somebody for a year with whom you have nothing in common and, you know, get each other's jokes and and so on. Well, finally, the system puts the two lovers back together and they see each other at the restaurant where new couples meet and they're just overjoyed they get, get to be together. This is the fulfillment of their hopes. But then they agree, they shake on it, not to check the duration. Because, you know... I think they've learned at that point that when you know how long something is going to last, it starts distorting it. So, for example, if they found out they were only going to be together for 24 hours, that might make them sad and then ruin the 24 hours that they have together. Or they might find out, we have to imagine, they're going to be together for five years, but they're so in love that they're upset because they would like to be together for 30 years. At any rate, they agree not to look. Well, the man, Frank is his name, Amy is the woman's name, the man... He's so in love and they're having such a good time after you know, a couple weeks or however long it's been that he secretly looks because he's anxious. He wants to know, as love does when lovers are in love, I want this to last forever. Right? That's, that's love's phenomenology, if you like. And you know, even when you're rational and you know it almost never lasts forever, you still have that feeling. You want this to last forever. Well, he checks it and it says five years. And you might think, relative to all the other relationships that were never longer than a year, that's good news. But then again, if you're in love and this is the person you want to be with for the rest of, five years starts to seem kind of short. And then what's really cruel is that the system goes recalibrating, recalibrating, and then it goes three years, two years, one year, you know, 50 days, 25 days, all the way down to 24 hours. And the conceit being that because they shook on it and he did it on his own, he betrayed the relationship. And so now it's spoiling the thing. Anyway, you, you asked me, what can one know from black mirror as a thought experiment that one couldn't know from science perhaps and i don't know that i'm going to answer this question with the science perhaps part but you can test me well i've fallen in love and i watched that episode afterwards and one of the features of the love that i'm experiencing is an anxiety about how long it's going to last and you know, whether the person loves me back and so on one thing that episode allowed me to know at least by demonstrating it in that very clear way was that one sure way to destroy a love is to become anxious about how long it's going to last and whether the other person loves you so you could take the entire history of you which we've also discussed as another illustration of this what is liam has a marriage which it's as far as we can tell he has ruined because of his anxiety about it because of his anxiety about her cheating he has ruined their marriage. You know, she actually does cheat, but we find out, if you investigate the episode, that the reason she cheats is that he has alienated her so much, and he's actually left in in a, in a huff for an indeterminate number of days because he's so anxious about her cheating, she actually goes and cheats. So from the combination of those two episodes, I got a lesson, and it really hit me in a way that no account I've ever read you know, having read some of the psychology of love, and you know, you can tell me more about it, you probably know more about it than I do. It hit me in a way that I feel like I know that I shouldn't be so anxious, or if I am, I should learn how to control it. Because that doesn't guarantee things will go well. But to indulge that anxiety, that's a guarantee that things will go badly.
0: Okay, but what you learned through uh, watching those episodes, I mean, Couldn't that be tackled and described and put in a useful way to people by science?
1: You tell me. I mean, (laughs) I'm not an expert in the science of love. I know some of it, but is there an academic paper out there or or a YouTube presentation that will give me that knowledge? in a way that will make a difference so that I'll live a better life? Because that's what I'm arguing for here, is with this just being an example, that Black Mirror and good fiction, which you're calling a thought experiment here, and we could question that about, well, what's the difference between a philosophical thought experiment like the trolley problem on the one hand, a very thin thing that I think has almost no value, and a thick fictional world that affects me in a way that gives me conviction about something by having shown me an example of it. I think those are two very different things. But back to the original point, do you know of, or could there be a scientific paper that would do for me what those episodes did for me? I don't know it, and I don't know that it would be possible. And I'm just maybe just not a scientific enough person.
0: Maybe I need to- I mean, perhaps it's just the way things are packaged because in Black Mirror, you take the full experience in one fell swoop, right? And you have all of the things occurring there and you have uh, access to, for example, people's Emotions, or what they express emotionally, and how that affects them, and what they know about the other person, and also how that affects them. But I mean, <laughs> through science, it's a bit more complicated. But just to give you an example, um, David Bus and others have been studying the emotion, the emotion of jealousy, and I guess that knowing both in men and women. uh, The sorts of things that trigger jealousy and how it works and uh, what we can do uh, to cope with it, let's say, and to not simply decide to end a relationship uh, or or, or to or to go uh, or to resort to domestic violence or something like that. I mean I'm not sure to what extent simply by being exposed to that sort of information uh, that would change by itself people's behavior. Because I've already interviewed, for example, Martin Daly on the show that is one of the biggest evolutionary psychologists out there. And it was very interesting because at a certain point... Basically, we were talking about uh, why are men violent, and particularly young men, and the social and ecological and environmental conditions that predispose young men toward violence Mm -hmm. uh, and risky behavior. And at a certain point, I asked them, so do you think that educating people about this and the evolutionary uh, cognitive psychological mechanisms behind these things. And if we we were to uh, tell and teach, for example, young men uh, how their minds work, that that would have a significant effect on them and they would avoid those kinds of behavior. And the interesting part there is that He answered, no. (laughs) And he he thinks that the reason is that um, uh, what we have access to consciously, and in this case, since we are learning new information, we can access it consciously, he doesn't believe that it really... uh, changes our behavior in any sort of meaningful way that it would be better in that case just to uh, change the environments and the environmental factors that young men are exposed to and that would at an unconscious level predispose them to better behavior let's say so i I mean that, that that's one thing one example that that i can give but uh, since we're talking about what we can uh, consciously learn about something by being exposed to it, either scientific information or a thought experiment in the form of, uh, of science fiction or something like that, any sort of art. Uh, I mean, if 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 Martin Daly is right, then would that make? any sort of uh, difference? I mean, uh, and would uh, being exposed to uh, two different sorts of, uh, of, um, two different sorts of way of exposing information change things uh, significantly? I mean, I I was just just wondering.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I valued all of that and I would agree with Martin Daly as, as you've depicted him. Um, I'm I'm reminded of uh, Trivers, the evolutionary psychologist. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. Robert Trivers, is it? Uh, uh,
0: Trivers. Trivers. Trivers.
1: And I saw a persuasive talk he gave on YouTube about um, cousin marriages and how they foster uh, revenge killings. And that in subcultures, cultures, but then subcultures in the West, where that's not a dominant um, marital kinship structure, those subcultures have higher levels of revenge killings, and he traces it, using scientific evidence, to cousin marriage. Well, that's a really valuable piece of science to know, and if you want to diminish revenge killings, which, of course, you would as a public policy expert, that science would be very helpful. You would forbid cousin marriages, for example, unless there were arguments to allow them, and you would weigh the evidence. That's all a third-person, scientific, public policy approach to that problem. But that's very different from being a man whose sister has slept with somebody, you know, in uh, an English town, and you're from somewhere in the Middle East or wherever, uh, knowing that data is not gonna make you less inclined to commit a revenge killing or not. I think, so sort of that's an illustration, I think, of, of his point. Another one I would give would be, there's a difference between, when you study martial arts, for example, reading a textbook of, you know, kung fu moves, and memorizing all these moves so that if you're watching a kung fu movie you, you can say well this is what this person should do here and this is what they should do here because you know all the moves and you know which you know human anatomy you know the weak points and so on that's very different from being in a fight when you're when you're in a fight your body has to have the knowledge it's not intellectual in the way that that third person account is and i think what well, the example i was trying to give about love from hang the dj because you know we were talking about the psychology of love earlier that's what prompted me to that particular example is when you're living your life you're not living it as a public policy expert. You're living it in the first person in a body with certain emotions, and you want to live it in a way that those things go well. And it's just a matter of fact that I think Daly's testifying to that certain kinds of learning that have great amounts of value in their own domain do nothing in the domain of living your life.
0: Yeah, but but then perhaps we get into the question of trying to distinguish. Uh... Okay, so perhaps we could say that something uh, has value in terms of knowledge, Uh, uh, but but on the other hand, we could also wonder, uh, okay, uh, if it has value to us as human beings to know that and to what extent... Uh, being yeah. exposed to those sorts of information, it uh, changes yeah. our behavior. And those are two different sorts of things. And, and perhaps first in our discussion, we were trying to decide on what is knowledge and what we should consider to be knowledge. But now we are talking about, okay, so what can people take from being exposed to, to this information, either uh, uh, via a form of art or via science, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I, here I want to make a distinction that I think has been implicit in, in a lot of my contributions in this interview, but I wasn't the distinction between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and if the Greek word Sophia and Episteme, it doesn't, doesn't matter for our purposes, except that Sophia is the root in philosophy. So philosophy in Plato's understanding is the love of wisdom. It's not the love of knowledge. But, knowledge is valuable. It's an important part of wisdom. To acquire more knowledge will help you to become more wise in most cases. Some people, however, the more knowledge they acquire, the less wise they become. Liam, from Entire History View, is a good example. He's acquiring all kinds of knowledge about the past through his scrutiny of these memories, but it's making them less wise because his whole approach to memories is the wrong approach. So, on, the, on, uh, on average, More knowledge helps to achieve more wisdom, but not always. Wisdom is superior to knowledge because wisdom is, among other things, the right way to appropriate knowledge. And when we live our lives, I think what we want is wisdom. We want things to go well. And that's the first-person perspective that I was trying to get at, too, in in that distinction. That's where we live from the first-person perspective, wanting wisdom, whether we use that word or not. Getting knowledge, learning about the third-person perspective, that can be really helpful, unless, of course, we get so preoccupied with that, and this is called intellectualization as a defense in psychotherapy and psychotherapeutic understanding of human behavior, we become so preoccupied with that that we forget about wisdom and we forget about the first-person perspective. As an academic, I know plenty of these people, brilliant minds about all kinds of important things in human life, but then their their actual human life is full of amazing incongruities and irrationalities that frustrate them. And they can't put the two things together. Now, I don't blame them. It's really hard to put the two things together. But I think we have to hold wisdom as the superior value and knowledge as the inferior value.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I I mean, do you think we should discuss any other thing today? Because we've already done three hours and we covered a lot of topics. And I mean, even uh, just talking about Black Mirror, I'm not sure if there's any other sort of uh, big topic that runs through yeah. the series or not.
1: So whether or not this is another big topic, since this has come up three times now, I will broach this episode that I think is very good, Shut Up and Dance. So let's just maybe talk about it for a few minutes, see if something comes up. If not, we'll, we'll just end the interview. So in Shut Up and Dance, this boy, and I, I think it's important how old he is, but I'll call him a boy, he um, looks at pornography and uh, a virus, a, a, a program... He's he's been hacked, it's been recorded. The hackers say that they'll release this video of him masturbating to this pornography to all of his contacts, unless he cooperates. And they, you know, give us your phone number and then be at this place at this time, and they draw him into a life of crime uh, with the original threat that they will release this video. And I use that as an illustration of stoicism or at least I I use Stoicism to talk about the decision-making there because the Stoics in, in, in many ways are quite simple fundamental distinction for Epictetus is what's up to you and what's not up to you and the things that are up to you are your judgment and your judgment alone and your free your free power to do the right thing everything else is not up to you including your reputation your body your health your money your possessions global warming the Big Bang or whatever Well that moment, and it depends whether you think he's watching child pornography, whether he's just watching pornography. I mean, I, I read the interviews now, and I guess Charlie Burke eventually conceived it as child pornography. But forgetting that just for the moment that the moment where they say, give us your number. He can either give them the number or not. And he gives them the number because he thinks that's the way to preserve his reputation. He's ashamed. And then of course, it's a slippery slope, they just keep asking him to do more and more things if he'd had that Stoic distinction from the beginning in, in his soul, and he really believed it. If he acted according to it and he'd said, I can control what's up to me and not what's not up to me. The only thing that's up to me is my judgment. My reputation has always been out of my control. I won't give them the number. Whatever happens to my reputation will happen to my reputation." Well, a lot of, Would have been solved. He wouldn't have ended up murdering somebody as he he does at the end of the uh, end of the episode. And and as I say, the child pornography thing kind of confuses things. And I think it's actually confused in the episode itself, and maybe maybe we can talk about that. I don't know if I can fold this into what we've just been discussing, but perhaps I can. There's a difference between being an expert in Stoicism, knowing all the stoic distinctions, knowing the Greek texts, knowing the scholarship about Epictetus, blah, 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 blah. And then there's when you're confronted with a choice such as Kenny has. In that moment or you're flooded with say shame it's a very powerful emotion it's very painful and people will generally do whatever it takes to make shame stop and i'm sure there are lots of good evolutionary reasons for that because you know to be ostracized by the tribe meant death so it's basically like facing a suicide but if you've integrated that stoic distinction where you will concern yourself with your judgment and your judgment alone and give no care to your reputation that's a, that's a totally different thing from being an expert in Stoicism. And I think that I used the episode to illustrate that that distinction, but also I think that if my students, and frankly myself, encounter a situation where we have to make that choice, I don't know that the scholarship on Stoicism will do us any good. I think that watching that episode will do us more good than all the scholarship in the world about Stoicism. So this is getting maybe back to the general question about what's the value in... Fictional, if you like, thought experiments that science can't give us gives us an illustration that sinks into us at a deeper level than the data does.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but then we get back into the question that we've just been exploring, right? That it's more or less the same thing. Which question? Uh, I, I mean, the question. Yes. Uh, and the, right. the the thing I said about uh, when I brought up the example of. Uh, Martin Daly and what we yes. and what yes. he said about being exposed to that right. sort of information and the effects that that would have on people and you said basically that just by knowing the basic tenets of stoicism people wouldn't be able to apply it properly they would have to witness in some sort of way. Uh, be exposed to situations and, and learn to deal with them in a, sto- in a stoic way in this case, Yes,
1: right? you're right. I haven't yet introduced a new topic, and I don't know that I will. Maybe I'm just selfishly trying to make a plug for that, that episode. However, and, and again, this might not be a new topic, but we'll go to back to something at the very least that we discussed earlier, so we we'll get a ring composition here, that that distinction What's up to us, namely our judgment or reason and everything else, that presupposes that our reason, our free will, which they synthesize with reason, that 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 really is a distinct thing from all the others. Mm-hmm. So take Nietzsche's view of the self, for example, that you are nothing but your deeds, that there is no soul underneath your deeds that's distinct. In Marcus Aurelius' metaphor, there's an inner citadel that is impregnable as long as you want to defend it no one can get in there if you, unless you let them. Well, you know, we've got all so- sorts of good psychological evidence that people crack under all kinds of pressure that suggests at any rate, I'm not an expert in the field, but suggests there is no inner citadel, that people have an illusion that there's a self deep down that, that they can preserve intact. But with brainwashing, with torture, uh, with solitary confinement, it disintegrates. Mm-hmm. And You know, again, I don't know if it's a new topic, we've touched on this, but a, a major theme throughout many Black Mirror episodes is the self, namely, who are we? And to use that stoic distinction to talk about shut up and dance presupposes that there is a self independent of the actions. And I think Plato gives the clearest and best account of this, namely, there's this thing, the immortal soul, that is playing a role in human life, but is ultimately separate from human life as opposed to the Nietzschean view of self, which is, is just deeds and there is no soul, and the whole notion of a soul is just part of an ascetic propaganda technique to try and trick masters to give up their power, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, et cetera. So, I don't know if we talked about that, if that's a new topic you want to talk about, if you want to fold well, it into... so.
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you would call it the self, but um, through disciplines like uh, personality psychology and behavioral genetics, we now really have a pretty good grasp on uh, inter-individual variation in terms of personality. So, I mean, uh, by being exposed to the same information, to the same environment, different people, because they have have different underlying genetics that gives rise to different uh, brain organizations, let's say, they they really process the same information in different ways so i mean i would i'm not sure if that would fall under the rubric of what you philosophically speaking would call the self but
1: yeah that's a good question I mean one way in which i would say it's not is that it's giving general descriptions and it's putting people into types and they could be finer and finer grade types, you know, not just the 16 personalities of the Meyer Briggs. You could have, well, you could have five, or you could have twenty, I don't know. It does the number doesn't matter. If it's a finite number, you're talking about types. And then, then you take individuals and you say, oh, well, you're type one, you're type two, here's another type one. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are characteristics of cells. And they, they might be divisible into types. But I'm talking about an unrepeatable thing. And you know there's a language in platonism and then in christianity too to talk about this the soul and one of the many things nietzsche is doing in attacking that tradition is saying there is no such thing he might grant you can divide up human actions into types and then there you know he talks about types right the the, the military type caesar of which caesar is a is a grand example and the and the artist type of which goethe is the best example and so on you could praise some you could disparage others ascetic types like saint paul and so on but that's not the question of whether there's this thing that is below your actions, that is that out of which you are making your decisions freely, and in the best cases, according to Plato anyway, rationally. And I'm glad as we come back to this, I don't think it's repetitive, because that's what I think Hegel has to assume is there. Otherwise. You can't make sense of wanting to be recognized as a free agent. if There's no such thing. I mean, you can make sense of it, but it's just the whole story then becomes just an illusion. To be a a fully meaningful story, as I take the master-slave dialectic to be, when you seek recognition from somebody because you feel yourself to be a free, rational agent, and only by risking your life can you achieve that, that, unless that's a facade, there is an agency of freedom, of rationality that you want to be recognized. And as you say, I think Plato gives the best account of that. That's why I'd, I'd fold Hegel into Plato.
0: Okay, but what would be perhaps a definition of the soul that you would give?
1: A definition? So, the, the soul as Plato understands it is just desire. Uh, in other words, we can start this conversation without any metaphysics whatsoever. That you know, this chair has no desires, it has no soul. I have desires, I have a soul, so plants have souls, animals have souls, things that move towards the world or are repelled by things in the world have souls, but Plato thinks that there are different types of desires, and he thinks in the end there are really three, but really just two types. There's a desire for an apparent good and a desire for a real good, and everything except what he calls the good counts as an apparent good. And the good, we, in, in this conversation, a rough approximation would be the truth, so that I can tie it to what we said earlier, that if all we desired were apparent goods, like honor and money, and what, by, what apparent means is that it, you, you get it if other people think you get it. So if people think you have honor, then you have honor. If people think you have money, then you have money. And so, on. that's a longer argument, but we'll let it suffice for now. If there were nothing but desires for apparent goods of that sort, then we wouldn't be able to account for science, namely the pursuit of truth for its own sake. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. Plato thinks that if there's science, which in his idiom means there is knowledge and there is a craving for it, there has to then be a craving for truth, which is what science promises us to give. And that that is, in the way that I alluded to earlier, the same as the real good. That truth is good for its own sake. So you ask, what is his definition of the soul? The quick answer is, it's desire. But since there are types of desire, there are then parts of the soul. That's all he means by parts of the soul. And where things get metaphysical is that in order to account for truth for its own sake, you need something that's Mm -hmm. non-material.
0: Okay, okay, but uh, (laughs) this is a bit complicated. Uh, even if the soul was desire, what does desire mean exactly? Wouldn't it be something that would also repeat itself among people? I mean, wouldn't we be able to uh, de- uh, to to, uh, to find types of desire reoccurring in different people?
1: Yeah, I know absolutely.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, but but okay, but. If you're trying to arrive at something that is a part of, of an individual, let's say, and doesn't repeat in other people, then isn't that a problem? I'm talking, talking about
1: talking uh, about an unrepeatable thing.
0: Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very good. So, look, that's an excellent question. And I don't know that I'll be able to give a coherent answer, but but what it's going to require to even seem coherent, and probably not at all, is to go to the highest level. And, yeah, Plato thinks there's only one unrepeatable thing that's going to satisfy that condition. And that's going to be God or the good. And what is the world? It's God's playing out of these parts of himself, if you like, in the dramatic analogy that I mentioned earlier. So Shakespeare is one guy. He writes all these plays. Let's just take one play, Hamlet. He writes, a, he writes a role for Horatio. He writes a role for Ophelia. He writes a role for Hamlet and Polonius and so on. Those are taking things out of himself and putting on a, on a drama. And in the platonic worldview, the good is overflowing and creating a world full of all these individual things. Ophelia is a distinct character. Hamlet's a distinct character. You can put them in types if you like, but there's, there's just Ophelia. And Ultimately, however, they are attributable to the one Shakespeare.
0: Hmm.
1: So, I'm playing. I'm playing a, you know, maybe, maybe a mystical game. That's why I say it's only coherent if if you're willing to go along as, as you are in your, in your tolerant way, willing to go along with the, the Platonic worldview.
0: Okay, but I, I mean, the, <laughs> this, this is really complicated to understand because if it all boils down to uh, some sort of god that provides a basis to to the rest of existence or even to existence itself, then isn't it the case that each person or each individual derives from that God? I mean, aren't they all part of the same thing?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah. Okay, but if they're all part of the same thing, I mean, if they in some way emanate from the same... Um, From the same thing. I mean, I'm going to use uh, the same word because I I I don't know what to call it exactly. The god. Uh, I mean, isn't what they have in them? Isn't it the same repeatable thing?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's the way in which I said. Excellent question. At the highest register, you are absolutely right. There is. There is only one unrepeatable thing, namely God. Everything else below that is repeatable. Is But, I mean, repeatable in what sense? So, you know, there are different analogies we can use. One that the Stoics use is there's a, a divine fire, and then there are sparks. Another one, equally sure, as well, is there's the, the the one glass of water, and then there are the drops. So, look, I pour out this drop of water into my hand. Then I pour out another drop of water into my hand. Those are emanations, if you like, of these of this one thing, for the moment, they're separate. There's one drop, there's another drop, and, and yet I close my hand, now they're combined, now I put them all back into the glass. Now they're united once again with the glass.
0: Okay, so, so basically, it is things composed of the same substance, but the same substance gets individualized and each individual drop, for example, is different from the others, even though it is composed of the same thing. Is that it?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's that's a good way of summarising it. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be limitations to the analogy, but it's you've you've you totally accurately characterised the analogy that I've given. Mm.
0: Okay, okay. So uh, look, perhaps <laughs> it's better for us uh, to finish the interview here. We've uh, we've already gone through. Uh, three hours, 10 minutes. Before we do,
1: Ricardo, Ricardo, if I may, just so that we don't end on a completely abstract mystical note, what does this have to do with Black Mirror? Here's how I brought it up. Let me just remind mm,
0: okay, okay,
1: okay, that this is a theme throughout many of the Black Mirror episodes. Who is this person? Is this person anybody? Are they just a collection of their deeds? Like, is he record all the things that have happened to him? Or is there a self down there? below the deeds. That's him. Same with Kenny. Is he a moral decision maker, independent of the fact that that he watches child pornography or that, you know, his his community will disparage him? Is there Lacey, who's in prison? She's lost everything. Is there there a kernel of her that's still valuable? It just shows up over and over again. And one of the many things I love about the series is that it it dramatizes that. And it dramatizes it in a especially vivid way using the technology, because I think one thing that the technology is that, you know, we're now trying to live our human lives in the midst of for the first time is that they fragment us into these personae, like we were saying with social media earlier, you've got your Facebook persona, you've got your Instagram persona, you've got your Twitter persona, which is the real you? Well, that's an each in question. the Nietzschean question. The answer for which would be, there is no real you. There's just this persona, that persona, that persona. It's all the performances. There's no performer. Or there's the platonic answer. Namely, no, there is a performer below all those performances. Now, I think that you can only make sense of a lot of the stuff that happens in these episodes with the supposition that there is this free rational agent below all those things. And, and I brought that up in a, in a less abstract way with the use of the Hegel a master-slave dialectic, which only makes sense, in my view, if there is such a thing as the free rational agent that you want to be recognized, and it's not just a, a big illusion. So I don't pretend that Charlie Brooker is a Hegelian or a Marxist or a Platonist or whatever. I think that he's an ingenious writer and producer of these philosophically dense episodes that as we started to say are distinct and only roughly inhabit the same world, but these same issues keep coming up and what I find and you're really helping me in this interview to see it clearly for the first time is that they're coming up in a way that I think can only be explained. On the supposition of something that, of course, he never broaches. He's, as I say, he's not a Platonist, he's not a Hegelian, he's not broaching explicit philosophical questions. There's hardly any religion or spirituality in these episodes. But I guess I'm using these episodes without recognizing, till this moment, that that's what I'm doing is to say, here is the only way you can account for this is with this crazy account of God and the emanation and so on. Mm-hmm
0: okay great so let's end on that note (laughs) now before we move on to another topic because i was just about to pick up on the persona i think and then we would go for another 40 minutes or something like that so uh, anyway it was again a pleasure to have you on the show a second time and i mean maybe one of these days we could do another episode and Talk about, as we said in the first one, uh, about Nietzsche or, or even about the, the psychoanalysts or at least bits That's, of it. I, I mean, I have to read a little bit more about that before, if we are ever to do that kind of episode. But anyway, so uh, thank you a lot again. And it was really a pleasure to talk to as, you again. As
1: we, I think we're averaging one a year. So how about in a, in a year we reconvene to talk about Nietzsche and Freud?
0: Yeah, perhaps that would be a good idea, yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. Hi there. Thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So, to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, Otherwise, I also have PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my Patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsson, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Ryan Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Ianne Hänninen, Ricardo Vladimiro and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervoz, and also my three producers, our Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.